He is risen. You are paid for by his crucifixion. That makes you immortal now, and he will not be long. Anyway, in putting an end to all of this absolute chaotic madness, the valley of decay, shadow, and death, the water that makes you a Christian declares you a son in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That seals it all. The bread and the wine, that institution, that last will and testimony which he has given to the world as a declaration of his kingdom come. Yea, eat this body, drink this blood, I will raise you up on the last day. That food feeds the faith in all these things. And to believe this together, that's what it means to be the holy Christian Catholic Apostolic Church. Provided provided that you're walking in the discipline of the apostles themselves, that would be often the question these days. These things that call themselves churches... They put church on the sign. They put all sorts of names on the sign. They do all sorts of things that look like what churches ought to do. And yet you find inside it's just a valley of dry bones and a den of idols and iniquity, right? And sometimes maybe you find that you're, you're the cause. You're part of the problem. Repentance. Repentance is on the docket, I think, for all of us. And I want to emphasize that as we talk about your epistemilagos. What is that? What do I mean by epistemilagos? Your epistemology is one of the most annoying words you could possibly learn. I've talked about this before, but you really should try to get this one down. Every time they talk about it in a philosophy class or in a history class, they're like, well, ep- epistemology, this is weird. What does it mean? Okay. Well, it's from Greek, right? And it means to stand upon words, right? So if you're going to exist as more than a potato in the battery-operated matrix weird world of Alice in Watch Your TV and Care About It Now land, right? If you're going to be more than that, take a note, come back to tomorrow, stop getting gaslit, yeah! If you're going to do more than that, then you're going to find in those notes you take, in that information you absorb, you're going to find some things mean more than others, and you're going to try to stand upon those things. That's called your epistemology. It's called your purpose, I suppose. It's the words you stand on. What is yours? That's the question I got for you this Saturday morning. What is your epistemology? What are the words that you stand on? And let me ask you this. What kind of God... Are you willing to believe in? Because that's got to be part of your epistemology. Even if you're an atheist, then you have to answer the question, I believe in a God that does not exist. (laughs) I believe that there is no such thing as a God so defined, although I'll be willing to believe aliens did it all billions of years ago and then panspermied the whole thing. And that's not a God, though, I swear. It's it's different than God of the gaps, I swear. Yeah, okay. Anyway, you have to answer the question, higher power, right? You have to answer the question, who is, in fact, running the universe? Is it nothing? Okay, well, then you've still decided what kind of God you are willing to believe in. So your first step in epistemology is to to figure out, you know, are you a creature or not? And if so, what kind of God is there? And as a Christian, I think this is especially important for you to ask these days. What kind of God are you willing to believe that Jesus Christ is? Right? I mean, it's one thing to say he's God. Okay, fine. But by God, I mean he's like the My Little Ponies and he gives presents at Christmas, right? Well, then, somehow, if that's in fact your confession of the one true faith, I think you missed it, right? I think you missed it. So, what kind of God are you willing to believe Jesus Christ is? Is he the God of the Old Testament? This is a question that for 200 years now, most of like what you see as, as Western Christianity says no. 
like the vast swath of money in Christianity at places that were founded to st- like train teachers and excuse me, train preachers like Harvard, right? Uh, that world has said, no, if Jesus is God, which they don't really believe either, he's certainly not the God of the Old Testament. That's completely different things. So this is like, for modern Christian now, postmodern Christian, try to pull your head out of the matrix again, get Skynet on the back, wo- back foot. You got to ask that question. Is Jesus the God of the Old Testament? If so, why am I not reading the Old Testament? Did you read it today? Why not? Right? Proverbs is a really easy way in, by the way. I'll sell that one to you right now. Proverbs. Jump in. Old Testament. Look at that. The law of liberty. The thing that James says, if you're going to be one who doesn't just hear, but actually does, because all the Roman Catholics totally are reading like the Proverbs all the time. Actually, there's some that are, and they're doing well because of it. And this is the point. You get into the scriptures, you get into the prophets and the apostles, and you stand upon words, you epistemology (laughs) on the words of everlasting reality. And again, I'm going to suggest to you that Proverbs is a great place to go to get your feet wet. Get your feet wet without having to worry too much about whether you got it dogmatically right so that someone is like, oh, that's heresy. Like, you don't have to worry too much about that in Proverbs. You you can. You can go Arian in Proverbs. It's quite possible. But don't worry about that yet, right? The point is, the scriptures of the Old Testament, when it says the, the wisdom of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, like who, who's wise guy, son of David, king of Israel? I mean, yeah, there's a dude named Solomon and he had quite a life and he wrote this stuff down, but who is this really from? Ah, it's really from Jesus the king, right? So, so what are the words you stand upon? What God are you willing to believe Jesus is? Does he demand your time? Does he demand discipline? Does he demand that you pay attention to what he says? Is that demand, in fact, an act of grace? <laughs> he is giving this entire time. So the moment you would turn around and be like, well, therefore I have justified myself by my works, pat me on the back and you need to be like me. You've missed the bus again here. Okay. The bus is to stand upon words that don't fall out from underneath your feet. What kind of God are you willing to believe Jesus Christ is? And if you're willing to do what I just did with the old Testament, be like, yeah, you get them pastor Fisk. You tell them to read the old Testament. You tell them to read their Bible. Okay. So what's the problem with baptism and the Lord's supper then? Really? Really, what's, what's the problem with believing that these things are what the texts just say they are? I know, I know, I know. You can't find an example of a baby being baptized. And so therefore, because of an argument based on silence, you will claim an adiaphora, a thing neither commanded nor forbidden, as a thing forbidden. That's an interesting move. Based upon the fact that you aren't willing to believe in a God who might just do that thing that allows you to baptize or not baptize a baby, but it's perfectly kosher. And in fact, if you understand it, you probably will. But in fact, he can save people who don't because that's happening too in the Christian church, if you noticed. <laughs> I mean, yet they're still getting baptized because it's the institution that makes you know you're a Christian. I declare I'm a Christian or I receive it. I mean, either way, you're being bound to Jesus at that moment by his words. Do you stand upon his words or upon your own interpretation of those words, which turns back to yourself and away from him and into this world? That's the question, right? What kind of God is Jesus? Do you believe in the God of the scriptures or not? And how would you know? Well, this is kind of connected to that sacramental thing then. Uh, you know, the mysteries. Is it possible that things exist that you don't understand? So forget Christianity for a minute. We're back on just epistemology. How, how do things are? Can you believe that things exist that you don't get? Because C- I think there's a lot of people who can't. 
And they maybe don't know that they can't because it would take a certain level of thought and process to realize that I'm thinking about things I know, but there may be things people know that I don't know and I don't know that. And so therefore, I don't know how much I can't know. Like that's a thought process that doesn't happen while you're watching TV, right? That's a thought process that happens when you're sitting at a, staring at a sunset for a couple hours, right? Or when you're reading a couple books. Uh, it's a completely different way of looking at things, but it's, it's pretty important, right? How do you know what you know? And may things be bigger than you can know? And again, I'm going to say yes to that one. I think it's pretty evident with the catastrophe that string theory has turned out to be that we don't know what's going on. And there's a lot going on that we don't understand. And that knowing that's kind of the first step to taking a firm new step into a chaotic age, wherein science is more of a religion than in fact anything else. Um, Are God's ways possibly beyond our ways? Can he do things we don't understand? Does Christ only do miracles that make sense? Oh, I'm getting at the sacraments now, aren't I? Uh, May God reveal what I already know. Oh, oh, that's good. May God only reveal what I already know. (laughs) This is where repentance becomes so much more than a moral conundrum, right? Like there's moral repentance. I'm doing evil. I realize it. I learn it's wrong. I turn around. I don't do evil anymore. But there's a level of repentance that's just thought. And that's where you're ignorant and then someone reveals to you that you're ignorant <laughs> and that there is this thing called knowledge. That revelation is called learning, but, but it also is a form of repentance because it requires an acknowledgement of you, your humiliated ignorance to some level. Like I am not as knowledgeable as this one that comes to me, this momentary higher power, this pen dragon for the moment, right? Who must teach me the way I should go. Well, the revealing of what you do not know as being possible is a key part of standing on words that you do know. <laughs> that you have to know what you know and what you don't know and then cling to what you know to have a strong epistemology. And that's not gobbledygook. And if you think it is, slow it down, write it down, and ponder it for two minutes. I know it's a radio show and a YouTube show. That's why it goes fast. But none of this stuff, 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 stuff? None of this stuff ought go fast in your ponderings. Yes, uh, these ought be things you consider at great length. Is this the wrong question? That might in fact be the case, but not if Jesus is your God, because finding an epistemology, finding words to stand upon that do not change, well, that's what the scriptures are. The way, the truth, and the life that point to him as risen, paying for you, making you immortal, and him promising that this suffering that we're enduring right now won't be long And it's all working for the good of we who are being brought into his body, the church, right? The gathering of a new anointed living priesthood, regenerate now by faith for the sake of a resurrection, which is coming. That's a religion that people think is boring. We're not listening. I mean, there's like, how dull have we become? Uh, what a thing there. Okay. Okay. Well, speaking of which, speaking of which, oh, we got, we got your questions. We got Bible's answers and my nonsense coming up definitely this morning here on the Saturday morning chill. Uh, I am the mad Christian for what that's worth, <laughs> for what that's worth. We also have a special guest today, uh, a young lady who's going to be launching her own podcast. And part of that is interviewing me on this show about trauma about operating as a minister with a traumatic condition, uh, CPTSD. Uh, and so that'll be coming up here in, in 20 minutes or so at 9.30. Um, so looking for that. And then we've got plenty of questions from you. We got stuff on, uh, we got stuff on, on uh, uh, contraception, contraception. Uh, we got stuff on everything. It's crazy. 
I don't even remember because there's too much and it's a lot and they're all hard questions. Man and woman in Christ. It's all like the stuff that the culture doesn't want to talk about and that'll be coming up in a little bit. So first, coming back to epistemology or at least trying to build off that that opening salvo. Uh, yeah, that's what that is. Uh, the worst case scenario right now for you is indifference to your body and your bodily life. It's the worst case scenario. I, I mean, there, there's a point at which someone could say, well, Pastor Fisk, what about the loss of faith? Wouldn't that be the worst? Yes, okay. So hyperboles aside, right? Where you don't want to be today, May, what are we? 15th, 2025. <laughs> where you don't want to be is indifference toward your body. That is where you've given up. I need a sip of water here. You don't want to have given up on yourself. So you can sit there and you can tweet and you can yell and you can scream about Gnostic paradise and utopia and how it's all falling apart. But the worst case scenario is then you're so trapped in that internal thing. This where do I have mine nearby? I don't have it. I'll use a mouse. I live in this little box and this little box is my brain and we talk. Mm, me and my brain got here. Like the, the worst case scenario is you do that so much that everything else around you starts to fall apart. <laughs> You know, I mean, mine doesn't look so clean right now, but I kind of know what's there, right? Like, I'm, I want to pay attention to what's actually around my body as being more real than whatever I can find on my magical screen toy here. Yeah, you see what I'm talking about. So, <laughs> um, <clears throat> indifference toward your own bodily existence is indifference toward the Christian faith. Because you, the Christian, are a body. I know, it's like, it's like nuts, because we live in a Gnostic world, a Gnostic paradise where everyone doesn't believe their bodies matter. But they do. Leave it to the Antichrist, John Paul II, so retired, <laughs> uh, to tell us about this years ago, that the church needs a theology of the body. He saw this coming. God bless the, um, make him repent and stuff. I, I don't know how to pray for a dead pope, honestly. I really don't. Lots of conversation we could tangent onto there. The point being that John Paul did point out this detachment of the human body from our identification experience, from our epistemology, from the way that we live, from our faith, years and years and years ago, and called out to the church on earth as its head, rightly said, because visibly he has been ever since he was revealed, you know, what was restraining him ceased to restrain him and all that, right? And he calls out being the liar who propagates the mass and the, and the celibacy of bishops forced, uh, and so therefore excommunicating Lutherans for those kinds of things, right? Um, that being said, he still is the head of, of visible Christianity. They still have a Bible in the Roman Catholic Church. There's lots of Christians in the Roman Catholic Church. The big fighters of the pro-life movement are the Roman Catholic Church, so we, before we bash them for everything, we should at least be aware they're part of the one Christian church on earth, even though their claim to be its head is what makes him the Antichrist, right? And the biggest divisive thing there. Nonetheless, they from time to time said good things. You should look up Gregory the Great. I mean, the guy did a few good things. And um, well, what? First uh, Clement. Clement of Rome, um, first bishop of Rome, uh, I mean, he wrote a couple letters that are worth reading from the early church. There's all sorts of good that can come out of what is also the office of the Antichrist, the seat of the Pope in the church, the claim to Godhead in the church. All that tangenting, and now coming back to, he called out a herald's cry and a good one, his office did, years ago. That the loss of the understanding of the body, the human body, as part of your faith experience, as part of your being saved by Jesus, as part of being a Christian. The loss of that in your understanding and in your Christian walk 
is the threat of the present age. I think he's quite on to something there. It may not be the only threat, like, right? That's, not, that's hyperbole again, but it certainly is a primary or a huge threat so that people are willing to believe they're whatever this little talking box tells them they are and, and ignore what they actually are and ignore what's going on around them, including the homeless people littering the streets, right? And the, and the, the inflation on all the, the finances and the, the house of cards that they stopped even showing that, right? So, so, <clears throat> See what I did there? Uh, the worst case scenario is that in all of this madness, you would also be indifferent to your own bodily life. It's not that you're going to stop your body from dying. It's not that your body's not going to have all sorts of problems. I mean, mine's just racked with pain most days. But doesn't matter. That's the gift of Jesus Christ to you. The very gift of existence itself is better than non-existence. And the one who would convince you otherwise is the devil himself. Your existence now as a body is what Jesus is saving. He's not just saving your mind. When the Bible says he's saving your soul, it means your body too. In most instances, the language there means your body too. We actually got some of that coming up later from a question. But the the point being, again, your entirety is being saved. Now, does that mean that the body that's saved is not going to die? No, you still now, with the faith of a resurrected man, get to live in the body of a dying man and watch it and hold it cling to it tight as it goes to the grave and say, die, body, but I love you because Christ has marked you and you're me, right? And then to believe that that body's going to come back. Now, this can in- entertain or go into a lot of different questions, I think, if you wanted to. That's the problem is we don't have a strong understanding of ourselves, our bodies as Christians in the history of dogmatic apologetics as we fought with each other about various points of doctrine. Right? And those points of doctrine matter, but they were in-house internal Christian debates, or they should have been, uh, as opposed to, say, the debates we might have with other more, shall we say, sorcerous religions. <laughs> you know, there's religions that use sorcery and religions that don't, and officially Christianity don't. <laughs> That's a big unifying factor there, by the way. Oh, goodness. So, so the worst case scenario right now is that your life is just something you see on a screen and it's not something you're experiencing off the screen as ownership, as Christianity, because you're not going to get Christianity from the screen. Even what I'm giving you, it ain't enough. It can't be done. This box is its own world and it is Alice in Wonderland down there. So, so, hey, Mad Hatter talking, you know, that's great and all, but indifference to your life means staring at the screen as if it's your life. <laughs> right? And what you want instead is to step away and stare at your life as if it's your life. And and maybe you don't like that. Maybe that's why you're in the screen so much. I get it. I've lived that too. And it wasn't because anybody else's fault, but my own ultimately. Although original sin does go a long way, doesn't it now? Indifference toward your own life is why I want you to keep listening. Because I want that to go away. Buried. Buried. In the flesh and blood, the wounds, the stripes, the gory, bloody lashes, the tears, and the sweaty pain of Jesus Christ. I want the, the crucified man to be the body that is not indifferent. And I want it to be that when that crucified man feeds you with his flesh and blood, with a body that is everlasting, I want that difference to make a difference in your mind, in your heart, in your mouth. Even though they be dying now, they die as those who will yet live. And so uh, can live upon these dark shores as those who have hope, right? Don't have to wallow, wallow, wallow in the muck. Remembering yesterday is far more pragmatic 
than imagining tomorrow. I've, I've been a fan of futurism, and maybe I'm wrong for this, and I don't know if I can stop, but I, I, futurism, the, trying to plan for and imagine tomorrow, trying to get things done, all that, um, trying to be efficient, uh, I've been into that maybe too much in my life. So I'm asking the question. It's not that you would never plan or never outline an idea or anything like that. Uh, but, but like to realize that there's a lot more, there's a lot more immediately applicable benefit in thinking about today based on yesterday. What happened yesterday? What is today then? As opposed to what is today and what do I want tomorrow to be? Uh, to build on continuity as opposed to on uncertain, hopeful precipice, really, right? So that's the idea. I, I hope, I think I said that pretty clearly. Um, remembering yesterday is of more pragmatic value than imagining tomorrow. It's not that you never want to imagine tomorrow, but if you're imagining tomorrow without remembering yesterday, you are going to fall off a cliff, America. <laughs> already done, already done. What is success at the end of the day? What is it? Hashkel? Shakal, actually, I should say. Shakal uh, in, in the Hebrew. What is success? Do time and chance actually conquer all? Is slow, smooth? I'm going to tell you that one's yes. Is smooth fast? Oh, yeah. Sure being. Strength is not the same as survival. Wisdom cannot profit. No one wins because it's right. Time is chance and chance comes. It's fun. It's like a poem. I don't know. It's just a bunch of notes. What do you think? Do you believe in punishment after death for evil people? That's an important one for your epistemology. We can stick with that one for a few more minutes. So like hell's good news. This is real important to work on. We've been on the back foot here, Christianity, for a long time. Dante's Inferno wasn't really good PR in the long game. And and what's happened is you've had Christian leaders throughout America for the last 50 years having to hem and haw about Gehenna, the fiery pit where the worm does not die and the flame does not go out, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, uh, where there is not a drop of water to wet your tongue, and where indeed you must suffer the penalty, the just, meat, right, salutary, good, and righteous penalty uh, for your betrayal of the one true good, only God and King. Uh, and that, that reality that the good God destroys evil and sends them to the place for evil, which is uh, abominational, destructive fire, uh, that nonetheless retains the preaching of it as a memory of the glory of God and his goodness. That's good news. Uh, it's it's actually good news. And, and we've been backfooting this thing for a long time. Well, hell, you know, God isn't really mean. He's trying to be nice to everybody but people just don't want to be nice and so it's kind of like he's asking and like that approach uh, is your god the god of the old testament <laughs> no if you're if you're taking that approach um the, the god of the old testament is a little more direct a little more direct and i'm not saying that christians have been empowered to use the sword the way that joshua was um we've been empowered to die the way that the second joshua was right but we, we certainly have been empowered to be wise as Gentile God-fearing converts, you know, the blanket with the pigs and everything, like don't call unclean what I have called clean. So, so we're, we've got a ton of freedom here to stand. Uh, the question is, will we stand upon what Christ has said or will we be so concerned with growth and popularity and worldly survival 
meaning our best life's worldly survival, quote unquote. Well, if that's what we're going to chase, then then we're going to have to change our stripes all the time and play with the crowd. You know, the the the, <laughs> the mainstream flow rarely flows in the same current for long. It's always going in the big wrong direction. But the current shifts and moves to kind of grab you and pull you. Know, oh, I can get on board. Oh, wait, I can't keep up. Oh, oh it's so far ahead. I'll try to keep up. Oh, I can't. Go. Oh, I can get on board here. And you know, culture just kind of comes and goes and pushes. Christianity is a ship in this storm. It is, a, is an ark in the midst of the deluge. And the words of Scripture, again, the prophets, the apostles, start with Solomon, a little Paul, some James won't hurt you, a little John, right? Uh, dig into this, that ark, that substantial reality, that box that protects your mind. It's not only for you individual, it's you plural, us, even as we gather weekly. Gather weekly to be bound even tighter, right? Through that sacramental merging, uh, the fusion, the gift that is his, uh, his holy body and blood. The scriptures are our lifeline to that. They are the preaching of that. They are the testimony of that. They're, they're, they're like a last will and testament in two parts, right? Before and after the event with all sorts of ultimate wisdom for you to walk in. I mean, all the only reason we don't do it is we don't believe that. And the more that you can kind of like call that one out in your own head, oh, the reason is because I actually don't believe it. And your heart's be like, oh, maybe I'm not a Christian. And you're like, shut up, heart. <laughs> I'm a Christian who has an immature faith. Stop thinking it's black and white, people. Golly, isn't that causing enough problems in America yet? Eh? Uh, have a little nuance in your life. Uh, you, you, there's such a thing as a Christian who is weak, who is listening to folly, who isn't not a Christian yet. And who, as a result of that immaturity, has not learned to take captive wicked thoughts, has not learned to fight back, has not learned to have a will that's built upon the apostles and the prophets. Uh, So again, find your resolve, find your peace, not in yourself, but in what has been revealed. And if you got nowhere else to go, then let's go back to hell. (laughs) I don't mean it actually, and yet I do again. Go back to the dogma, the doctrine. We, we even confess it in the, in, in one sense, we confess it in the creed. Go back to the reality that the good God hates evil. And remember that you live in an evil world. And he said that. And then ask yourself why you're playing with the world so much. And then don't ask yourself that in terms of, oh, I'm going to beat myself up about it now. Be like, this is a good warning. Thank you, Jesus, for this amazing, look at how close to death I am. I'm going to turn around. <laughs> look at it that way. Now, the way the people saw the fiery snakes in the wilderness when they came to Moses said, pray for us. Look, look at it that way. I get it. I can't imagine being back in those places and be like, oh, let's pray to Yahweh now. But that was the right thing. That's what the Christians did. So now what do the Christians do? Well, we pray to Jesus. <laughs> we pray to Jesus about the chaos of what we see around us right now. And we trust that. We trust that his word as delivered, his last will and testament as given, is the Holy Spirit's Harbinger, oracle, permanent, founding statement to break even language itself and transcend time, space unto eternity by entering your heart with a simple reality that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. I'm going to take a quick break, come back with my special guest. Y'all stick around, especially if you want to hear about what it feels like when Jonathan cries. All right, we are back here, and we have... Oh, it looks like she was in the video the entire time. Uh, let's see here. <laughs> As a pop-in screen, and now i got to just get rid of the pop-in screen. We have a Rebecca Lemke here who is starting a new podcast, and I'm going to let her treat this segment like it's her podcast. So why don't you go ahead? 
Well, thank you. So uh, welcome, everybody. This is going to be the first episode of my new podcast. Um, it's called uh, Frozen in Motion, and it's actually a play on all of the different trauma responses. Um, so I am super excited to have you on as my first podcast episode and my first guest, um, because my husband actually sent me a tweet of yours a couple weeks ago in April. And it was hashtagged with CPTSD. And I got really excited because I have CPTSD. And I've never seen a Lutheran pastor talk about that. Um, so I'm really excited to hear from you about this. And um, I'm really appreciative of you letting me on your show as well um, so that this can be a, a dual thing. Um, I guess my first question would just be, uh, you know, that it is rare for me to see pastors talking about mental health in general. Um, and so I'm really interested in kind of your take and things like that. Cause one of the things I see, especially in Lutheran circles is that emotions are sinful and trauma just doesn't factor in at all. <laughs> I, I want to write that one down. Emotions are sinful and try to, try to get to that because I think you're right in a sense. I don't think anyone says that yeah. on purpose. Um, but that is sort of how it gets practiced. Let me say that first, I can really only speak for being a, a, Lutheran pastor and a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod pastor, particularly, although any old mainline body training will be similar to what I got, very institutional, very rugged, uh, very high scholastic, <laughs> and trying to be all things to all people, giving you an incredibly wide taste of lots of things, including one, I think, evening class that wasn't a class and was for credit only. You just had to go for six weeks on dealing with um, uh, various types of, of uh, psychological issues in the parish. And we watched like videos, you know, and, and, you know, so, so the level of ignorance is just a level <laughs> of ignorance. It, it is really for, for being the scholastic uh, training that we get, we are trained in, at least in our, our circles is to be philosophical lawyers with a biblical minor. And that's not all bad, but it comes out of a very different world than the current one we're living in. And um, with this comes a certain uh, strange conflux and minimizing of psychological illness and its overlapping spiritual counterpart of demonic attack and oppression, which mm -hmm. just is ignored largely uh, in my church body where we just don't talk about it. It's like, oh, we'll just pretend it's not there <laughs> kind of thing, right? Um, um, so, so let me start from that position and then say... Um, I only learned about complex post-traumatic stress disorder something like four weeks ago. Oh, <laughs> I mean, really, I just, uh, I have been, uh, in my life, uh, I was, uh, I, my first memory of going to a psychologist is when I was six, maybe seven. Um, there's lots around this that I don't want to go into, but let's just say that I was in and out of uh, psychological processing and or pharmaceutical medicating uh, for a long time. Uh, and even when I finally just kind of broke with those and decided my Christianity was sufficient to live with the pain. I definitely self-medicated in the evening with a couple of beers. And uh, I would never call that drunkenness, but neither was it wisdom, uh, I think, uh, to, to approach uh, depressing the pain of, of the CPTSD that way. When I, um, But I've, I've never really wanted to be okay with my pain in that regard, or I never wanted to say that there, uh, there's not an answer to this. I didn't even know I was looking in a sense. But having been with enough psychologists uh, and, you know, the, the various um, uh, 
uh, trends that come and go. Uh, autism gets thrown around a lot. Narcissism gets thrown around a lot. And as a person of Lutheran conscience, of course, I'm then self-accusing and asking myself, you know, are these things me? And, and starting to wonder, maybe they are. Maybe that's part of why the social part of being a pastor is so hard for me. It's not that I don't want to do it. It's that I do it very poorly. <laughs> In spite of all of my efforts to try and be good at it. And, and, and thankfully, I think most people would say, what is he talking about? But that's because they can't see inside of me um, what's going on. Um, so continuing to search, um, what happened was I, I, I was a little more overweight than I am now. Um, I've, I've always been choosing, chasing perfection as part of CPTSD. So I've been chasing in a lot of ways and nutrition and health was part of that. And so I wanted to lose weight. I wanted to be in my forties and feel good about how I looked and it's very vain, but nonetheless, it led to (laughs) carnivore diet. Um, and, uh, that led to no more alcohol. So when I didn't have the ability to self-medicate with two or three beers in the evening, over the course of three to four hours, by the way, I wasn't pounding these things, um, you know, right. I want to, I want to make sure for the sake of public, you know, um, site that I was living what I would still consider an above reproach life publicly. I mean, it's, I really am and was, um, and that's part of why people won't talk about this is that it's like, well, how could you, you're, you're evil or something. And that's part of the fear of the complex. So anyway, uh, when I stopped kind of just relaxing in the evening with a couple beers, what we found was that my behavior patterns changed dramatically. And what the beer had been sort of depressing became these flashbacks of, of CPTSD. And they began coming out really for the first time, probably since, I don't know, my, I was 18, 17. Um, when did I start drinking? 20, 22. Um, so, so anyway, um, that just became something that confused me, my wife, my kids. We don't even know what's happening yet because we don't have the language to flashback to talk about it. All we know is that what appeared to be really a good marriage was suddenly feeling rocky. And uh, both of us knew it and neither of us really knew why. She has her own traumatic issues in the past too. And so having worked through a lot of that, you know, that's where we were initially circling around. And then she... Um, uh, through all of that and having her own needs for nutritional health come to the fore uh, a year and a half ago, two years ago, um, uh, the person she was working with as a coach out in California, a lady named Vivian, uh, uh, sorry, Vivica, who we learned about on the High Performance Outliers Carnivore podcast, she recommended <laughs> to her Peter Walker's book, Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder from uh, Surviving to Thriving. And she, Meredith actually held on to that and, and didn't recommend it to me for a little bit and recommended it to two other friends. And when one of the friends wrote back and said how valuable it was to them, she told me about it and she had, we had ordered it. And within three days, I was just, di- that was a month ago, right? And I've just been diving through that book, repeatedly going through that book, trying to come to terms with what it all means. And ultimately it's such good news to realize that a flashback is like, it's like a temporary emotional insanity your mind is still here. Your mind is still here, but your emotions are gone. They've gone somewhere else. And knowing that is so much power. It doesn't fix it all right away. But then by, again, trying to apply mindfulness to it, um, uh, I found a really quick path of growth myself. But that also is because I think I was preparing for this in a lot of ways. I was searching for this answer. I was tired of living. I didn't even know how to say it, but living in fear, constant, constant dripping fear. Um, and I, I didn't want to live like that. And thanks be to God, praying to Jesus this whole time too. I mean, I've spent the last year and I've praising, praying to Jesus for wisdom and studying the Proverbs and all this, right? This piece just kind of came along and fit. And the way I look at it is the only way you ever deal with this is you own it. You own it hard. And that means while well, I'm a public figure, I, if I hide this, I don't ever deal with it, right? I never, I never get out of it. And so um at that point, I just threw caution to the wind a little bit, and I might as well talk about it. And it's it's seemed to pull a pretty strong wind, I would say, within the listening community. Um, and I wonder how much of my 
my footprint theologically and digitally is already speaking to people who struggle with traumatic issues, if not CPTSD, um, and whether or not my own battles with that have just part of it, what's made me the communicator uh, that I can be of the gospel. Um, so yeah, it's a long answer to your question, but oh, yeah. I love that. Um, there's so many things that I want to like ask as a tangent to all of that, but um, I think you mentioned like the demonic and stuff like that. Mm. I personally, like I have um, anorexia nervosa and then I also have CPTSD. And one of the things I, I grew up in a very Baptist area. <laughs> so even though I was Lutheran, um, the Lutheran side of things, I just didn't really get a lot of advice either way. And the Baptist side of things, I got told that I had demons. Oh, wow. So I was just wondering if you've experienced that or like heard of that ever. I've been and, accused of it, but yeah. from very <laughs> far away, like the person wasn't with me, um, mm. uh, which I think makes a big difference actually. But you <laughs> yeah. know, so, so when you hear from far away, someone said you you're you have a demon, that's your problem, and that this is like mm-hmm. their their reason why you're a bad preacher. You at a certain point, you just you don't listen to that one anymore, right? Yeah. But um, <laughs> the problem is, uh, I don't know enough about this. First off. I, this has opened a whole desire to study something that in European Lutheranism, European Catholicism, pre, like pre-enlightenment at least, but since then they still have studied this, just not on the, on the big wide society of biblical literature side of things. Um, all the work on demonologies in German, French, Latin, it's old, it's Jesuit, right? And, and that's also dangerous in its own right. So I don't know much. What I have found uh, is one book by a Lutheran pastor from Germany. Um, and I I tell you the title if I can grab it. I don't even want to show it to you because the cover's got Occult Bondage and Deliverance. Occult Bondage and Deliverance by Kirk Koch. Um, it is a, a resource um, that I'm just kind of starting the question and to look into, and he makes this big point at the start about how psychology and uh, spirituality dwell in the soul together. And there are things that are strictly chemical or nurture related, but then part of that nurture environment can in fact be things like sorcery, which then are intentionally calling of demons into places. And those demons can haunt you for a long time, even if you were ignorant of, of what, you know, your contact points were. Now, then what happens in say like a Baptist circle, I would imagine, and maybe even in a Lutheran circle of a different type, is that all this gets made into one thing, right? So, yes. you know, if everything that's wrong is a demon and everything, you know, or nothing's a demon, right? You, you'd kind of have these either sides of it um, <laughs> rather than realizing that crea- creation itself is in disarray. Our flesh has it, its own taint, as it were. And we're not demonic. We're fallen human. But we're on the demon side by nature, Right. So, so all of that's part of it. And that's part of this, the, what I would call the real psychology is, is learning to deal with the, the dark nature of your flesh. Right. Um, as opposed to actual oppression. Now, again, so being when, when you're a pastor or you're a, I don't know, a Christian, you're talking to someone who's struggling to assert that the issue is automatically a cult related, uh, I do think is over the top, but also <laughs> at the same time, I can't blame groups for trying because everywhere else right now, it's not even in the picture. Right. And Mm -hmm. so I don't know how to begin answering that question other than to say (laughs) that CPTSD, as I experience it is a psychological disorder that definitely has spiritual implications in which my faith is kicking its butt. (laughs) 
And then the <laughs> scriptures are way, way ahead of the game in terms of my, my body's need to reckon with its fear. And they've carried me this far. I don't know why they wouldn't carry me through the rest of this. But I also will say that I am increasingly aware that evil is a proximity, um, that spiritual warfare is not merely in your head, but happens in space around us. And there are evil places and there are good places and your church is a good place and abortion mill is a evil place and that that matters to the demons uh, and that they're around these things, right? And that, and that in many, many other cultures, or, I mean, you don't, in the atheist culture that we live in, in Christian society and in Jewish society, you don't have sorcery. But in almost every other culture, you have sorcery. These are doctors that you go to for your soul who call upon demons to help you. And they will help you with something, but they will also hurt you with something else. How much of things like CPTSD can be connected to generations ago, something like that happening? And now the torment is, I, I don't know. Jesus baptized us. And now... With the wisdom of logic, honestly, uh, even a, a even a pagan can show us the way to handle the psychosis we deal with and say no to whatever level of dark power is outside shouting at us, right? So whether it's demons or not that are somewhere in the big abyss making your flesh accuse you with shame and the voice of your parents and grandparents and so on doesn't matter because you can't see it. What you see and feel is your body. What you see and feel is the scriptures of Jesus Christ, right? The word and sacrament. And then in that, the tools, uh, particularly those 13 steps that Peter Walker lays out for walking through flashbacks as, um, as I study more William James psychology, it is a habit of psychology, a habit of thought. So you have a one thought that's so bound up from like infantile state to another thought and they're emotional and it will run a chain one, two, three, five, six, and before you know it, you've run this <laughs> chain and what Peter Walker's tools are is ways to slowly pull that chain apart and practice each step going somewhere else so you cannot be overwhelmed by uh, it quite as fast or you can walk your way back out of it. So if that doesn't answer your question about the demonic other than to say like, like just pray for pity's sakes. We know for certain from scripture that when you can't cast them out, the answer is prayer. <laughs> and, so, and so as a Christian praying the Lord's Prayer, saying the creed every day, um, repeating the Ten Commandments to yourself, praying the Psalms, these are a huge part for me of my um, life let alone then the trauma that I deal with in my life. So th those two things kind of go together. Nice. So I don't know what kind of symptomology you have. And if this is not an okay, okay question, let me know. But I'm just curious if you tend to, since, since your church is like one of the things that you need to take care of, like your family and it's, it's kind of like your tribe. And so, you kind of feel protective over them. Mm -hmm. And with CPTSD kind of giving us a little bit of a uh, spicy protector vibes where yeah. it's a little bit over the top. Do you deal with that with your congregation? Yes, I'm sure I do. Or they <laughs> deal with me. Uh, and, and I think that um, what I've usually been in most people's eyes is eccentric. Is just yeah. kind of the way they would look at me. And it's true. I mean, it's true yeah. in that regard. And I've worked in congregations with people who outdid me on this level. And to be fair... <laughs> If you just do as like a swath of of the pastoral um, guys who are pastors, whatever that category of person is, there's a good percentage of eccentric people in that in that party, right? So um, this is something that I think most people who train pastors are aware of is is figuring out how to emotionally connect with that whole congregation and do it well is very very difficult, and I think it's why a lot of people end up dropping out of the ministry. Um, so just to kind of move maybe toward the four F's a little bit, I think. I live in a permanent flight. I'm definitely like flight is my native state. 
But then in that native state where I would prefer to flight to flee every human situation, right? So even when I'm like with my kids, I'm getting ready to get away. Even if I know it's going to be hours later, there's an emotional need to run away. And that's, that's awful. It's just absolutely terrible. Anyway, um, on top of that base experience of all human interaction, um, terror, <laughs> uh, I, I then move into, I think a fawn fight reflex. So I prefer to fawn. I, I prefer to please you. I will always try to just make you happy. Come on. We're all here together. And eventually I'll get louder in my attempts to make you happy, which I don't realize is moving toward a fight, right? I just think I'm really trying to help. <laughs> and, and that, you know, in council meetings, I think people just chalk that up to my zeal. And it probably is to some extent. I can't even tell, say that I've been in flashbacks in council meetings. I don't know, right? I don't know. I, I, but what I do know is that as I've talked with my board of elders about this and I went straight to them, I said, look, I've figured something out. It's really important. Let's talk about this. Um, they were kind of surprised, right? Like, oh, well, okay, sure. Whatever you need to help you. And and so like in that regard, I know that my personal management of the experience, again, on a public level is not one that I think uh, requires discipline. Um, but it now becomes like a major focal point of how to get to be a better pastor because I certainly can improve in these regions. And now I know how. Oh my goodness, it's so great to know how. <laughs> Yeah. All these years, it's just been like a mystery to me uh, how humans connect with each other. Um, and again, those steps of turning the fear off. And that's you have to walk yourself out of adrenaline and into calm and then realize they're not going to hurt you, hopefully. <laughs> it's rough. It's rough. Um, I'm amazed that I've lasted this long, uh, not just as a human, but as a pastor. I, I think the, the, the deck is stacked against me. But I also think that a person's a pastor because Jesus makes you a pastor. So, you know, I'm, I'm here as his... Um, as his Jonathan, uh, his, his gift, that's what the word means. And it's, it's a very particular gift at the moment. Um, and I'm trying to see all of it that way too. Uh, that, how, how did I think of it uh, this morning? Since I effectively have the emotional maturity of a two-year-old, when it comes <laughs> to the emotions of fear and anger, because I was never allowed to express them in such a way where I learned how to deal with them in a healthy way. And so I repressed them instead and they never developed. Um, mm -hmm. That means I get to grow into my fear at age 43. Now, most kids are going to do this at age one and two, somewhere in there in the middle of the night where they just kind of realize that fear is something they can handle. I get to do that with my mind turned on. And what I believe that will do for me, uh, God willing, Lord have mercy. I think I'm going to be really hard to scare at a certain point. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. I, I really do. It's not here. It's probably years away. But once I get that, I think I'm going to like living like that. <laughs> I think having a certain, the mental acuity to know fear the moment it happens, which most people don't, they'll only react. I'll be able to smell it, <laughs> think about it. And maybe act on it. And, and I, I'm going to consider that a gift. It's, it's my ordeal. It's my growing up pattern, whatever you want to call it. And I don't, that doesn't mean that like when I go out and have my next flashback and I'm in the middle of, I hate my life and I want to go away and I wish it would all go away that I'm going to feel great at that moment. <laughs> but the more I'm in these moments on the other side of it, the more in the dark moment I can be like, Oh, it's going to pass. It's a flashback. It's going to pass. Fear comes and goes. Anger comes and goes. And that's what we weren't ever allowed to learn. Right. I mean, that, I think that's really what's at the heart of it is we weren't allowed to learn that. And so yeah. 
his, his tools, particularly for uh, mindful meditating and finding the anger and finding the fear and feeling it that I can't recommend that enough uh, as a, as a process here. Um, and then that's what you do say when you're in a moment with a prisoner who's going to say something that then triggers more emotion than is necessary. The awareness of the emotion and breathing is really the path to then, you know, seeing that person for who they are and like, yeah, they were really, really rude, but they're not going to kill you. So, you know, your emotions <laughs> can be down here. <laughs> and, and for anybody who's not in this, I mean, uh, it's hard to express. You're like, yeah, I get afraid too. It's like, no, I, I hate to break it to you. You're, I mean, you're not in this club. You're not in this club. You don't want to be really. But um, so, yeah, and you're nodding because you know. Yeah, this is very relatable. <laughs> Very much so. Um, I actually need to take a look at my notes because I have really bad brain fog from this. I don't know if you get to deal with all the physical side effects of it, but like my adrenaline's like, nope, we're keeping all the blood in the core. Yeah. No, none to the brain. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I'll let you look at your notes. Don't listen. And I'll talk to the, the crowd while you, while you look at your notes. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm on automatic. Uh, when I go into a show, it's the adrenaline's on and I've done this for years. So it's just, I'm just a robot right now. Uh, nice. I'll, I'll t- when, when the show's over, I will I will sit and feel very heavy oh. and yeah. uh, start accusing myself of failure and start to dwindle. And I'm gonna go get a hug. <laughs> Just try to try to combat that a little bit. Yeah. Also very relatable. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, do you think that your faith has strengthened your P- CPTSD? It sounds like it it has. What do you mean by strengthen? Like, um, do you think it's helped you? process it thus far having no idea what it was and then at the same time process it now knowing what it is yeah it it is and and, and to the level where i still don't know how to talk about this yet and i so let me just have this be something i can take back as i say it yeah but um, in a weird way cptsd is just sin it's inherited entirely and also active Changing your person so that you, in fact, don't do what you want to do and do ultimately evil instead. And it's everyone's got this then, right? But not like this. This is a particularly acute version of it, which is, again, what I think makes it kind of cool because you are so forced to have it be tight that you can engage it in a way that would just be really wide for everybody else. So you can begin to theologically talk about your inner man, your fleshly man, and you like got one, <laughs> like like, and he doesn't always come out, and you can push him down. And you know, oh, he's fighting back, <laughs> the, the, the critic, right? So so yep. the language of CPTSD for me has been just another way of talking about Christian dogma, as a pagan does it without Christ, as he finds it in nature. Again, the theology of the body, the theology of the human, right? Um, and so he's missing grace. He's missing forgiveness. Uh, Mr. Walker for God bless him for his work. Um, he, he does not regularly turn the rightly justified anger at the wrongdoer into the freedom to forgive. Uh, um, and so I, I think, I think you can only forgive once you've been angry. We've got a question about that coming up later as well. Um, but, uh, so yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned brain fog and bodily stuff too. I, that I'm not as sure. I definitely know. That when I am flashing back, I'm stupid. <laughs> I know that. That I know. Um, I just, I don't, I don't talk smart at that point. And, um, 
Yeah. And, and I also know that I have more than one kind of flashback too. Uh, and so like in one sense, that permanent on switch of the fear factor that I live in is a permanent flashback that as I have begun to unwind it, I can find experiences that are not like that. Like I can actually become calm. It takes mindfulness and sitting still for a while, but I, I can do it now. Um, and, uh, so in that sense, I'm like always in a flashback. Yeah. But then I have like the real flashback, which is the one where <laughs> I'm, I don't even know. And I'm ready to walk out the door because I'm so confused or angry or afraid. And, and everyone else is like, what's going on? So, and that's the one that, you know, really tipped me off to the problem. And then it's the tip of the iceberg, but there's so much more underneath, which is again, where this is such a good news. If this is your diagnosis, like the fact that you, you can do something about this one. Most yeah. psychological diagnosis, you're just stuck. You just get it. You're there. <laughs> and this one's got a, it's got a path in it. And that to me, that continues to be encouraging. And I think my faith and my belief that Christ is a God who always gives you paths. I mean, that, that goes with this too. So I should say, as I, I mentioned a moment ago, other, other psychologies come with, you know, more permanent diagnoses. Um, if you're in one and you're like, no, they don't, well, then you're right. <laughs> anyway, um, don't, don't take it sitting down and know that the regeneration of the spirit, again, he'll do what he'll do. And so ask him for the good things and you know, take the thorns as thorns. The thorns are to remind you of your need for him. And then when the thorn is gone, rejoice, right? Rejoice and walk. Ah. I love that. So do you have any of the like re-traumatization type stuff that happens where, you know, you're used to bad situations. And so then you don't recognize bad situations that you either have to be around or walk into. And then you just get confused sure. and overwhelmed. So that, that is what goes on when I go to church. Okay. <laughs> like literally every time I go to church, it's, it, it turns into a crisis moment before oh, I walk in no. <laughs> and I have to walk myself through it. But again, I got really good at it. No one knows. It's just, it's just on the side, right? Um, and then inevitably, like the first thing someone tells me is a problem, which yeah. from the perfectionist point of view, like I've not, I've not fawned you enough now, right? Um, I failed you and there's incredible shame and we must fix it as a crisis because until it's fixed, the world's going to collapse. And um, I don't only, I don't, here's the thing about this one. I think a lot of pastors have that. Yeah. I think a lot of pastors <laughs> develop CPTSD with regard to their congregation. And it's not the infantile one. So in that regard, you can get rid of it faster <laughs> uh, yeah. if, you, if you use the tools, right? Because mine's built on top of a two-year-old problem. But if you just got this thing after you're 25, because you go into these places where they, they berate and they shame and they question and they tell you you're wrong and no one ever tells you you did it right. And no matter how good you preach, it's still not enough money. And on and on and on and on. <laughs> at a certain point, you know, you walk in that room, you know, you're going to get hurt and it begins to build the mechanism, right? you begin to distance yourself from the people. So I think a lot of pastors deal with this. Um, and uh, I would encourage them to learn about this for that reason, as well as the the, the very amazing theological sin-shame connection uh, that the <laughs> book can enlighten you on. Um, I will also suggest that because of overuse of television in the household, because of the, uh, the, the love of many growing cold in households around the planet right now as we worship the golden <laughs> box, um, I think there may be a whole lot more of this coming up in yeah. the younger crowds. I think this might be a large percentage of the population at some point. So all the yeah. stuff I talk about on my show with regard to barbarianism and being ready for the barbaric means being ready for people who on a whim become two to five year olds in tantrum and then act with their male giant bodies in crowds. 
That's a scary future, right? And I'd rather like live with my real body in that future, honestly, than dwell afraid of a past trauma, which again is what I usually am doing. So I would, I'm, I'm encouraged to talk about the real problems and kind of get over the ghosts, the ghosts. Yeah. That's the way I felt the entire pandemic. Everybody lost their minds and I was like, oh, chaos. I know how to fix this. <laughs> I can live I like, in this. It's my time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so is there something that, uh, congregations and lay people can do to support our pastors? Since like you say, even if they don't have CPTSD, a lot of times they're walking into impossible situations. Yeah, they are. Um, if you're LCMS, I'd recommend your pastor go to doxology. Doxology is a Mm -hmm. camp. (laughs) I don't know what to call it. (laughs) A retreat for pastors to kind of take all pastors who are assumed to be at a certain level of beat up. (laughs) <laughs> and give them some time to bond and grow and remember, you know, you, you went out as soldiers. So of course you're going to get shot. Right. But when they send you out as soldiers that you just, it's a lot of hurrah. Right. And then there's not much support once you're out. And so doxology does a great job of creating a community for uh, spiritual growth for pastors. It's very LCMS and very Lutheran. Um, uh, in terms of outside of that though, um, uh, I, I don't know quite uh, what to recommend other than um it's really, I don't know what to recommend because one of the main lessons I am still trying to learn is that I have enough in the scriptures if I'll just stay in the scriptures. As useful as Peter Walker's steps have been, I think I could have gotten to the end of my life in a successful marriage with my faith without the understanding and wisdom that he brought. I even think that attuning and praying the Proverbs and Psalms with care toward this very heartfelt issue might've even brought about that answer through the scripture alone. But instead God saw fit to provide it through uh, the economy of a post-Christian society in which logic and reason and care and charity still matter that produced a psychologist who, you know, did the work and talked to enough people in pain to figure out how to deal with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know if that's an answer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, yeah. I Absolutely. I was going to ask you as well. Um, so we've talked a little bit about um, Pete Walker's book. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have other resources that you found that you like, or is that like the main one? I haven't, I haven't made my, my way all the way through it yet. <laughs> well, it's take it in parts. I'm, I mean, I'm not done yet. I am, I am circling and going back around and making notes and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, I, so I do this other I do a number of things. One of them is a podcast called A Brief History Power of Two White Guys. And Dr. Adam Koontz is my um, my better half in that show. And so learning about Walker's assertion that uh, in the development of the child, the ego gets submerged into the superego. And the I am then is lost behind a you should. Even though you may say I am in your head sometimes, it really isn't. It's always a you should. It's always a you should. And so recovering that I am, I found that to be very helpful. But then I went and I asked Dr. Kuntz about ego, super ego, id, because oh, that's Freud. And, you know, so what's that mean? And he, he, he didn't know I was asking for these reasons, but he just kind of like said, Freud, bad, evil Freud. And then he <laughs> recommended um, Psychology of the Briefer Course by William James. I found the first uh, seven, 14 pages of this to be unbelievably good and completely lining up with Walker's work. I mean, the, the first things about habit, habit, and the whole thing, the whole section is showing how your mind works based on habit 
and the development of chains of thought that you cannot stop that lead you to a certain place. I mean, it's the same stuff. It's the same stuff. So this has been very, very helpful just in, in opening it. Um, the other thing, where did I put that? I'm gonna have to reach. I can say that I've discovered is just, um, drawing doodling, right? This kind of stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and then this is my current, I have, I've gone through several versions of these, but this is my current flashback card. So when I'm going to flashback, this is what I go to. Um, and the real goal of this card is to normalize my depression and my fear. I want to, I want to normalize it. I want to realize that the body is afraid and that that's always what I am. And, and indeed, the more I normalize that, the more that it will, it'll let go. Um, but I mean, I, I, <laughs> this morning I, at Walker's insistence or uh, prescription, I'm taking 20 to 30 minutes every day to continue a mindfulness practice I began four years ago and it stopped the last six months. I'm starting it up again and I do it entirely at this point with this card. And I, this is something I want to say I'm proud of. Um, I brought myself to tears twice in the, in the 25 minutes <laughs> today, um, cautiously, carefully through the pain of my body and my heart. Um, and one time was even laughing as I was crying. Um, those are experiences. Yeah. Th- thank you for laughing. Those are experiences that are just like mind bogglingly good to me. Um, and so my recommendation is, is, Get that first book, Grain of Salted as a Christian. <laughs> Take it so slow. Make notes, circle things, and then start to doodle off the key things. And I think that processing will do a lot more than more resources will do. Um, and if you want another resource, that, that William James Brief Course of Psychology, I mean, that's going to be for all brains. <laughs> and so since your brain's like uniquely traumatized, having the, the, the proper brain uh, will help. I can say like he had a oh, – I threw it down there already – there was a whole paragraph I wrote by it and like I crossed it off where it was all about like uh, you just have to make the choice to uh, to be happy or something like that. It's like make the choice to change the thought. It's like, well, okay, old thinking there a little bit. But he's right about the pattern and, and you know, the observation of the science of it. And this is from an era where science was still observing <laughs> as opposed to this one where they just make stuff up. So, yeah. It's very true. Yeah. It's so nice to get to talk to somebody else who both gets it and is also Christian because, you know, navigating this stuff, I've been to four counselors, I think, mm. in my adult life. And it's always something that I'm like, I don't know if you're giving me good advice because, right. Right. because you're not Christian. And and I have had really bad counselors in that vein. Um, and I don't actually trust them some, in general. For that, yeah. Me either. All the ones I've been to. And so I haven't tried to find another one yet because I feel like I've gotten what I can get. And I hate to say that. I don't like that. I wish it were the other way because I know I'd I'd benefit from some role playing. (laughs) Role playing would be so huge right now for me. But like, uh, you know, you take what's in front of you. Yeah. So um, have you had any uh, negative impacts on your faith from CPTSD? So like, for example, for me, I'm very much the type of person that, like, because of my CPTSD, where if I even think, well, I want to do this, I'm like, it's going to get taken. (laughs) Something bad's going to happen. And so I really, really struggle with praying and um, reading the Bible and things like that, because I'm like, if I pray and I tell God what I, what I am feeling and what Mm. I, uh, what I want and what I'm sad about and all that stuff, something's going to go really wrong. (laughs) Right. So there's like a level of magical thinking there, right? Where you're like, God's listening to you so perfectly that if you say it wrong, he'll do it, right? Uh, uh, right. Uh, And that's that's the shame. That's the critic in the shame, right? And so what you're doing is you're shaming yourself over being an imperfect receiver of the scriptures. 
And uh, because it was never modeled to you that you're not doing this as an incantation to make things happen. You're doing this as the spirit filling you with himself and that that's his work. And just the words will do that over time. Granted, you could harden your heart against it. So but that's not your problem, right? Most people, I think, have trouble opening a Bible. I, I do think there's... So when we talk about the spiritual overlap and the demonic oppression, like like trying to open your Bible and read it out loud is hard. It's just yeah. hard. <laughs> and then when you're already... Or when you're in, embroiled in self-shaming and um, hypercriticism, when your internal monologue is only you are wrong, then it becomes you know even more of a difficulty. Um, the way I've combated that is is with, uh, I guess Walker would call this thought stopping. Um, Jesus don't care that I don't feel like praying. <laughs> he really don't care. Uh, he, he, he has commanded us to pray. And so I should get down there and, and like a pious Jew, just say it out loud if I can't believe it, but I'll find out as soon as I start, I believe all of it. So like, that's good too. Right. Um, but so I, I wouldn't call that one a place where personally I'm experiencing a weakness from the CPTSD, but hopefully what I just said can kind of help, you know, in your own, your own fight yep. with it. Um, where I found it is that when I'm in a real flashback deep, and this has only been maybe a couple times in the last, last year, but at a certain point, like you don't deserve to be a pastor mm-hmm. comes out pretty loud. And then right on its heels is something like, because you're not even a Christian. Um, yeah. And every once in a while, I believe that (laughs) when it, when it's said to me, it doesn't last long in my experience. I usually will grab this thing (laughs) as a (laughs) symbol of my baptism. Um, so I can remember that I don't get to decide whether or not I'm a Christian. Jesus gets to decide whether or not I'm a Christian. He says I am, so I'm going to keep believing it even when I don't feel like (laughs) believing it. But that'd be where I would say that the emotional left turn can get so real that it's like, look, all you are is sin. And I'm like, yep, that's right. I am. Look at that. I must not be a believer. And the logical step's so easy that my conscience will go with it. My emotions will go with it. Um, thankfully, again, the theological training and habit I have, the, uh, developing a belief system that's bigger than my emotions, right? Emotions are not bad, but they're not all of you. And your belief system needs to be bigger than them. Uh, developing that means that those moments of despair angst, fleshly unbelief, um, they pass fairly quickly and they are not all that I am, nor do I think Jesus saved me just to cast me out the first moment I doubt, right? I mean, that is not the the path he's given any of us, quite the opposite. Those very moments are the ones, I hate to quote the the cheesy poem, but to see that he carried during that time, right? He was there, even though you didn't (laughs) know it, right? And so, uh, so yeah, yeah. Amazing. Well, I don't think I have any more questions, at least not written down, but I so appreciate your time and this has been incredible. Um, do you have maybe any closing thoughts for um, my audience or this segment or anything like that? I want to talk about the emotions being sinful thing. I mean, yes. you kind of mentioned that. Can you say something about that from your point of view? Like where have you heard that yeah. and how has that been harmful to you? Yes. Yeah, so I I find it to be a really uh, Gnostic thing, <laughs> um, but I have heard that in the Lutheran church growing up. Um, I'm not sure if it was intentional, um, but I've heard that a lot in the Lutheran church, a lot in the Baptist church. Um, one of the things, I did grow up in a cult, so <laughs> keep that in mind, um, but not in the Lutheran church. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so, you know, in this cult that I grew up in, a lot of the time they would quote scripture out of context. And so one of the things that we ran into was like, you know, having a crush on someone was sinful because you can't trust your emotions. And so you can't trust um, your body deciding who might be a good hmm. person to have children with. Like, Interesting. Yeah. you know, and so um, there was a lot of things that like, even before the fall would have been a good thing and a normal thing that they were like, nope, nope, feelings are bad. Um, and so um, I got that from the cult where I believe there was a verse and I'm struggling to remember what it was, um, but it was way out of context. Um, it was, I think, in Jeremiah and it was I, the hardest deceitful above all things and mm -hmm. beyond cure. Um, and they didn't attach the rest of it of who could understand it. Hmm, I don't know. <laughs> Um, so that was what they used to say that, but like anger, sinful emotion, uh, sadness, sinful emotion, uh, happiness, also sinful emotion. So you were never allowed to feel any of those and you're never allowed to think of them in a good context where, you know, they're leading you in a good direction, um, as your body's, you know, originally intended to where, right. you know, Oh, I'm scared because there's a lion chasing me. Perhaps I should listen to that and run the other way, you know. Um, yeah. And then yeah. in the Lutheran church, it was just something where you know we can't focus on emotions. We can't focus on the body. The only thing that matters is Jesus, which is true, true. Right. kind of. <laughs> but we we um, it would seem that there's a spirit, a group spirit in uh, American Lutheranism that <laughs> likes to hide from the real sin that's in front of us all of us yes. whatever it is behind <laughs> a nice structure of stories that we say we believe but we don't even read anymore yes. <laughs> you know we just yes. put them on the shelf uh, and and uh so that's again well man will justify himself in any way possible and groups of men without leaders to lead them will go where the bad leader doesn't lead them right uh, sometimes he's just wandering himself <laughs> Um, so thank you for sharing that. Uh, and if I can respond then just a touch to the emotions are sinful thing. Um, there, there's two kind of main, main points in it. One is that anger is something that is attributed to God. Yeah. Sadness is something that God does. And so like when Jesus weeps, like that one's a real tip, right? Like, like emotions <laughs> aren't, aren't evil. And even the ones that man uses in evil ways, anger, sadness, fear, um, they're not evil. The fear of Jesus is the beginning of all wisdom. It's the greatest good that there is. So, you know, this shows you how far we've fallen. Um, the attempt to make sin go away by making the emotion go away is kind of a standard type of thing that fallen man will do. It's like we realize that we're evil, so we'll cut off our hand and like that'll stop it, yeah, right? Totally. There we go, you know, and uh, and it just doesn't work. In fact, it makes things worse. Um, but your 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 connection to Gnosticism, I think, is very insightful. Uh, I think I was saying that in the opening monologue a little bit, um, that uh, your body is your emotions and your emotions are your body. And this idea that you have a soul that's not a part of your body that somehow is just existing separate. Now it's all confused in one big mass and, and listening to your body is uh, what you're trained not to do in order to ignore the anger and the sadness um, and being trained from infancy to do this is again, it's a form of neglect and or abuse. Um, it can be done by people who are ignorant. The solution 
though, uh, Christianity says is your body's baptized, right? Uh, even these emotions, if they are sin, are still in Christ. They're still in Christ. And that from there, he intends for you to wake up and regenerate. Uh, he doesn't cast you off because you're sinful. You're all you're going to be sinful the day you walk in the grave. What he wants, what he makes happen is an increasing enlightenment of your knowledge that he hasn't left you, even though you're sinful. He's not going to. And so there it is. There's sin again. And, and where is your faith right now to, to deal with it? And by sin again, I don't mean necessarily like I went out and mass murdered people. I'm talking about this internal conscience struggle, which Lutheranism very rightly sees in the scriptures. And yet somehow also, I think, can engender in people by stealing from them the ability to deal with their bodily realities too. And not Lutheranism, but a, a false form of it that we're maybe dealing yeah. with today. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's, that's just opinion a little bit there. So tell us uh, where people can find you. Um, name of the show, uh, what other guests you got lined up? If you got any lined up, I mean, pitch, pitch it a little bit here. I threw my hat over the fence, um, actually, <laughs> which is very typical for me. I, I will sit and think about stuff and be like, I really want to do this. And then some opportunity will prevent, present itself and I'll be like, eh, that person's not going to say yes. I didn't think you were going to say yes. So you are my first guest and my only guest so far. Okay. Um, I need to figure that out. But if anybody has recommendations... Let me know. Yeah, where do they find uh, you? That's the key then. They got yeah. Me. So um, RebeccaLemke.com. It's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-L-E-M-K-E and then dot com. Um, I will have the podcast up there. Um, I have social media, but. Right. I don't want to. I don't want to promote spending time on social media. Amen to that. Amen to that. <laughs> is yeah. there a way they can contact you through the web, website? Do they have a way to yes. send in? Okay. So yes, RebeccaLemke.com and it's with two C's, not a K. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and then a K in the Lemke, though, right? L e m k e. All right. Yeah, and the name of the podcast? Do we have a name for it yet? It's going to be um, Frozen in Motion. That's what it's called. Frozen I'm in so Motion. Excited. Rebecca Lemke. <laughs> Thanks for being with me this morning. Everybody else, we'll be back with your questions, Bible's answers, and my nonsense in just a moment. All right. We got a question coming up about anger, but this one from <coughs> excuse me from Wesley Clark here, um, commenting on <laughs> Cafe Sola. <clears throat> excuse me. Drank a bunch of stuff. In your anger, do not sin. Does this imply that we can learn to have righteous anger that is not sin? Wesley Clark, I think you're correct. In the same way that Jesus could be tempted without sin because he is without sin, we can only be tempted simply because we are sinful, right? So I would, I would suggest that your anger is never sin. Your anger may be for all sorts of reasons that are sin, right? But the anger itself is, is not the sin, right? That is a emotion that is a good creation of God. Um, why you got angry, that could be because you're a completely sinful jerk, right? <laughs> um, and then what you do because you're angry, that could also be really, really evil. Uh, but that the anger is itself not sin. It's, it is the proper reaction to injustice. It is, it is what should happen when injustice occurs is, is anger. It's right to be angry. Now, does that mean that you, sinful as you are, are always right when you're angry? No. No. So, but when you're dealing with philosophical categories, you cannot be so wide. You do have to deal with some, some limitations uh, and whatnot. Um, so, okay. Let's see. We are going to start, I guess, with Trent. Hi, Trent. Trent says, the Western church has long forgotten these two crucial facts and has subjected itself to an inversion of these truths. This is about man and woman in Christ. Did I, did I, uh, oh, here we go. Frisbee, you and I are backwards on this. So I always want to do the name first and then that's not how it works. Here we go. All right. Greetings in Christ, Rev Fisk. There we go. I recently discovered the world of the Christian red pill. The cornerstone of the red pill is viewing the divine assignment of duties of God, considering the sexual inclinations of man and woman. So what you're talking about is that there is a group that's taken the idea from the matrix of 
eating the red pill or the blue pill to wake up from the chaos dream you are living in that you think is not real. I want to wake up from and that Christians are saying the real thing here that is the red pill is the sexuality of man and woman. Let me go one up and say it's the theology of the human body again. I'll just we're on that that uh, that bit today. You're not going to get to man and woman without first dealing with the theology of body, the theology of man, which of course means dealing with the theology of Christ being risen from the dead and these things. So I, I like where you're going. I like what they're fighting, and yet I think that they're really silly. Actually, I think calling. I think when we have to use the metaphors of the pagans to sell our wares, we're selling our wares. And that's what I don't want to do anymore, right? But certainly one can compare, one can compare uh, waking up from the matrix to understanding gender dysphoria as a cultural phenomena, which we definitely are in the midst of. So divine duties as prescribed in Ephesians 5, 22 to 27. Yeah. Um, and you're listing these off here and men are to lead as Christ leads and women are to submit as the church submits to Christ. Correct. Uh, the sexual inclinations then are as follows. Women have a natural inclination toward the most high value man. Now, I don't know. This is Ephesians five. Now you're taking, you're taking a little bit of like your own understanding for herd dynamics. And you know what? You're probably right to some extent here. Uh, women have an inclination toward the most high value man who will commit to them, right? So that you want a committed man who will help you protect the children. This is natural. Not all women are trained to keep these thoughts, but like if you let women grow up in the wild, they will want a man who stays by them and helps them feed the kids. That's kind of what happens. Okay. Uh, isn't it crazy? That's how bad it is right now that I have to explain that. Oh my goodness. Think about it anyway. Uh, <laughs> and that men have a natural inclination to be with as many different women as possible polygamous. So, uh, maybe, um, certainly there is the uh, confusion amongst men of, uh, sexual arousal with love and romantic love. Uh, so that is there. Men have more of a native tendency to wander and sow wild oats, right? So in that regard, that's there. Um, I, I don't know though that, that we can apply this as our, as our ultimate metric, but maybe this is red pill, right? This is red pill stuff. Okay, sure. Um, the measure of red pill being somebody else's ideas that I don't have to agree with if I don't want to, uh, the measure of value that women use for men includes such things as career success and prospects. I mean, this is good advice. There's a, there's a decent, um, a little YouTube video out there called economics of sex. Google that one, uh, not Google it. YouTube search for the economics of sex. It's a conservative video about about how getting married young is really good for you ladies and waiting not so good and all the guys that wait that's the reason it's not so good to wait is this the way it works because the good guys get married pretty young so um yeah uh high value that women use for men include things as career success prospects physical strength refinement spiritual health fear of the lord you would you would like to think they use the fear of the Lord as a, as a, <laughs> as a metric and the ability to promote and enforce your will. That's true. So leadership, right? Alpha status definitely has something to do with attracting the girl because the girl wants to feel safe and the alpha is what makes her feel safe. That doesn't mean he rages at her, right? That means that she knows he, he will protect her from others. Uh, this last point can be exemplified by saying, I do what I want. Again, in the context of what God wants, what you want. When people question what or why are you doing anything, I'm getting a little lost here, but women seek high value alpha men. Yes, true. Uh, the measure of value men use for women is familiar to you and me as we both are men, attractive, faithful, available, saved, teachable. Now we're talking, you're talking, this is red pill stuff again, right? So, okay. So her dynamics, fascinating. Uh, let's get, let's get somewhere with it. Um, the Western church has long forgotten these two crucial facts and subjected itself to inversion of these truths. Um, yeah, that's fair. Okay. Yeah. Men don't lead. I mean, yeah, it's pretty straight up. Um, uh, I believe that you would very much agree with me on the first issue of dying male leadership in the chest. Yes, yes, that's what I say. Yeah, men don't lead. Um, and how the women lead because they say, well, the men won't lead. And no ladies, that's why the men won't lead is because you're leading. <laughs> 
they'll lead when you don't. Um, and when you do, then they won't. And it's weird and it's their sin and it is, is a thing. Um, but Trent here wants to emphasize this inversion regarding modern Christian marriages. Agreed. Uh, the struggle with men in the marriage to please their wife rather than to lead and protect their wife. And uh, I know that one firsthand from my own my own battles, right? It's easy for the soul to get caught in that one. And I and many others, Trent goes on, contend that many Christian marriages fail due to the husband losing his leadership, headship, alphaness, pendragonness, uh, as the church pushes the inverted relation of submission and pursuit of the wife. Um yeah, so the wife is to be happy, right? So it is the it is the pleasure or the joy of the woman in the home. Uh, that's the matrilineal concept that Mad Mondays has talked about a few times. Um, that's what has really begun to run marriages in the church. And this has a lot to do, I think, with men just not reading their Bibles, honestly, just straight up like that fixed a lot of it, but not entirely, not entirely. But that's a, that's a big, big part of it. Uh, the wife then desperate for leadership and strength. Uh, leaves her husband for another man. She perceives the traits he desires. Um, that, that definitely is where divorce happens at times. I don't know. Um, it, there, there's a big brush we're using here, so I don't want to get too narrow on it. But if you're interested in this topic, there's a very well collaborated compliant resource, the Red Pill Christians. So here you go. Um, uh, a 10,000 foot overview of the Red Pill. So what we have here is a wreck then, ultimately, for Red Pill Christians is a place to go and dig into some interesting thoughts about herd dynamics, man and woman in Christ, and recovering biblical Christian, Christian views of what it means to be a human and have a body that is sexually diverse. Um, now, I do not recommend necessarily this entire thing, and I'll say from the start too that like it's they're pushing on good things here. I agree on a lot of the main issues. Um, red pill Christians, how about we just stick with like biblical, <laughs> like what the Bible says? How about uh, Romans eight Catholics, Ephesians five, Lutherans? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. We we should we got it in our marriage, right? You'd think we believe it, but again, what's on the book and what we say in the ritual is not always what's in the heart and the mind at home, and that's part of where the real problem has come over the last fifty years of worshiping different gods that we've been doing. And we'll leave that for another time, Gene. Hi, Gene. Gene says this. My question is about anger. Yay, we were just talking about this. Um, Before I became a Lutheran, I had been taught that it's possible to be angry but not sin. I think that's right. Uh, In the sense that anger itself is not sin, and the text is talking about don't do things with it. Like, shut your mouth, hold your hands, your brain is forgiven, okay? Yeah, his point is don't let it out. Um, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I mean, don't stay in it. It doesn't mean like you have to, if ever you go to bed angry, therefore you're not going to heaven or therefore the marriage is over. Like that's black and white thinking. You really don't need that kind of catastrophizing in your normal day-to-day life. Instead, understand the exhortation from James to not let the sun go down in your anger is to don't dwell in it. Like, like feel it. Don't repress it. That's exactly what CPTSD does is it represses it. It forces the sun to go down on the anger permanently. Instead, acknowledge it. Own it. It's a bodily emotion. There it is. It's anger. Okay, it's anger. It's anger. It's there, right? But what do you do with it in the moment when it's coming at you, right? The key for the Christian is not to let it then go back out evil for evil exchange. Since it is generally the right reaction to evil, unfortunately, we react with evil, right? And that's where the the hang-up really comes. So in counseling... um, I'm learning anger is just another emotion. Agreed. Now I'm told in my LCMS church that all anger is sin. He's wrong. He's wrong. I've heard this. I've heard it said. It's just wrong. It's, 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 I want to say it's godless, but I know the man probably is a good Christian and just is ignorant, but, but it is a complete lack of awareness of the human condition. The man has not read the Psalms, does not read the Psalms carefully, does not understand what it means to be a human. And 
he's probably traumatized himself, whoever's saying this, and, and trying to like avoid his own anger. Okay, so um, for that reason, I, I don't know what else to tell you other than that. Pray, pray, pray for this pastor, and for your own sake, consider another congregation. <laughs> um, and I don't know who this is. I don't know why. And talk to him first, right? It's always uh, where it comes for on this show. Uh, my advice is always to be gentle first, be charitable first, uh, to extend the hand of fellowship, to be as honest as you can. But at the end of the day, if he really believes anger is sin and you need to repent of your anger and never have anger, I would not go to that church. Don't go. Bad things are going to happen at that church. That church is not going to last. Uh, your, ch- your children will not be able to be buried in that church. Not if he stays there like that. I mean, that's, that is a, it's a, it's a completely unbiblical notion and it will destroy as we just saw in that interview, right? What, what trying to take away emotion does to a human. Uh, so, um, yeah, I don't know what else to tell you. I've heard this recently. I saw it in a paper by someone who I respect. Otherwise I was so upset when I saw it. I was angry. I was like, wait, how can you write a paper against anger when God gave it to us <laughs> as a gift to protect us from evil? Yeah, actually. Um, so uh, it, the problem is we're evil. Uh, and so we use it in evil ways. And of course, repentance and a life of recognizing that wisdom is better than strength, better a patient man than a warrior. I mean, all that goes with embracing your anger, but it, you by no means are going to overcome your anger by pretending it ain't there. You're just going to cause yourself to get sick. <laughs> oh man, hypertense. Uh, can you please provide more clarity on this subject, which is so confusing to me? I mean, I think you were pretty clear before some doofball messed you up with just saying stuff <laughs> as if it was from the Bible. Where's the verses? Where's the verses? These two verses you quoted, is that it? They say, what's Jesus and the money changers? Was he sinning? Oh, you can't do that. You're right. You can't do that. But he was angry. Was the anger sin or not? Okay, well, then it's, the anger is not sin. Me driving people away with a whip, that'd be sin. Me being angry at the money changers in the temple, not sin. Not sin. Am I a sinner? Is sin always with me? Yes. But that idea that you use that argument that sin's always with you to make it impossible to distinguish sinning and not sinning in real time, that's why we're dying in Lutheranism. When we do that, that's unfaithful. That's really unfaithful. That's just not believing in the difference between good and evil and trying to supplement our material, pleasurable lives with some sort of licentious gospel mongering. Sorry. And, and, and I'm like the gospel preacher guy. I wrote broken for pity's sake. You guys gave me trouble. I was on the other side of the 30s of the law debate. Uh, sorry, Gene, you didn't want any of that. <laughs> uh, but, but here I am because this is just it. We are antinomians. We're not soft. We're loud antinomians. How are we antinomians? We make up stuff. We make up laws that don't exist, like don't be angry. And then we tell people to go off and have marriages where the man's not the head. That's how we're antinomians. It has nothing to do with kind of the like the internal little heart struggles of everybody everywhere. And oh, oh, oh I want to be the next Luther with the Reformation. Listen to me. That's what's going on in LCMS, like pastor circles. We're all fighting over scraps. While, while all of us together have ceased to imbibe, ceased to imbibe the living word as if it's our only hope. I can I, I mean I, I don't want to talk out of school, but I, I have been in meetings with pastors where the question is what shall we do? And the answer is pray, and the answer is that's not enough. And I'll tell you, that's antinomianism. <laughs> it really is. Grace, uh now that is the answer to antinomianism to not preach the gospel? This is how you know the thirties of the law argument is all nonsense, right? So therefore don't preach the gospel. You'd be like, Dude, law and gospel, they both have to be true. They both have to be spoken at all times. He is risen. That's a fact. And that's the reason why we should stand upon the ruins of this world, knowing the nature of this world's built by God and that we have it revealed, particularly in the 10 commandments in a way that cannot go astray. So while the world does, let's, 
let's stay straight. What do you say? Yeah. I mean, I didn't mean it like that way, but like that way too. Grace says this. Hello, Rev Fisk. I've been wondering for a while about something which the last two SM chill sessions brought up. The manifestations of evil from willful decisions to corrupt systems for to natural disasters. Ooh, that's kind of fun. Dark powers. Uh, how ought we to distinguish the devil's handiwork versus fallen creation versus sinful beings doing their thing apart from the spirit of Christ? Well, why, why would you distinguish those things? Like, again, we just talked about this a little bit uh, uh, in, the, in the other interview. I'm not going to claim that anybody in English has a lot <laughs> on this, okay? And if they do, I'm not sure you want to listen to them. Okay, uh, but uh, if I have seen anything in the scriptures with regard to how you fight the devil, it's not by looking him in the eye. It's not by seeing behind what's going on and then being there. It's about realizing that any attempt at the devil to be seen by you, to impact you, to have you think about him is not what he was made for. So your real power in the war against light and darkness is to not see the demons, to not see whether it was the devil or nature, to know that it was God, <laughs> that, that if the demons were sent, God sent them. Who shall I send to entice Ahab to attack Syria? Huh? Yeah? I mean, it's uh, the messenger of the flesh, the angel of the flesh that St. Paul says, take it away. My grace is sufficient. Who sent that devil, that demon? On St. Paul, his whole life long, we think. You know, it would seem. Uh, um, the power of prayer is not having to know. The power of Christianity is not having to see. And this is where what you have in the text of Scripture is what you need in the midst of all of these things, and where regardless of what kind of evil you see happening, whether it be cosmic event or minor event, the texts of the Psalter as prayers you've prayed already and have become part of your heart condition, a metric in your mind. That is the pattern to follow in the midst of dark disasters, whatever they are. And then insofar as the Lord would give you further insight, if he does, God help us all. I don't think, I don't think it was more fun when you could see the demons make a noise. I don't. I'm not so sure that's, that's not coming either. <laughs> uh, I, I, that's a whole other topic. Who knows? That's part of the problem. And theology by maybe and what if, that's what the pagans do. And some of them figure stuff out over large amounts of time. We have theology by Jesus said so. So, you know, how do I tell the difference between a corrupt system and the spirit of Christ? Well, do they, do they say what the scriptures say? Straight up. I mean, start with Ten Commandments and order. It's just how the world's ordered. Start with Proverbs and like what wisdom is and someone who does the opposite of that. Here, try this one on for size. Think about winking for just a moment here. This one's a fun one. You really test yourself here. Do you believe the Bible or not? You know, winking means you're lying. Did you know that? That's what the Bible says. It says it very clearly, multiple times. It says that if you're lying, as if you're winking, you're lying, so don't do it. Even though it's part of a joke, right? It also says if you're joking like that, you're probably hurting somebody. It says that too. You don't believe those things, right? Or will you? What happens the next time somebody winks at you? I know. So wait a minute. But I want to trust you. But you're my friend. What's going on? They just don't know. But that's just it. We just don't know what liars we've become. We just don't know how deceived we are. Um, the difference is, do you know what the scriptures say? Can I say it enough? 
what, what I have to become like the Bible reading, tell you to do it guy. Uh, it's not, it's not like, I mean, there've been plenty of Christian groups where people read their Bible and things go wrong. It's not a panacea to all the problems getting fixed, but let me suggest that many of the problems right now are because this one's not happening. <laughs> and so this one has to come back. Uh, and then that will help you discern whether someone's speaking for the devil or speaking for God. I mean, it's the, the more you know of what the devil says when he talks, the more you're going to be able to see what's going on out there around you. And the more you'll know a Christian when he's in leadership. You'll be able to see it because he'll say things that are Christian things. He won't just play the game. Uh, so is it better to think of sin, death, and the devil as simply evil or simply sin? Thank you. Well, well, that's good. I don't know. What we don't want to get... What we do not want is to get lost in genealogizing the world we can't see again. Evil, and even there, so so when something happens to you and you think, this was bad, this was evil. Like, remember as a Christian that because Christ is risen from the dead, nothing that happens to you ever is actually evil again. All of it is good for you in your faith in the resurrection. So even the devil is God's devil. He's not good in the sense of he'll be redeemed. Don't hear me saying that. But so far as your relationship with him goes, it's all for your good. He's not even evil to you as as hard as he tries to be. He can't be. God keeps through Christ's blood, bending it back toward good. Story of Joseph, right? Story of Joseph. So um, what I would suggest is that rather than go out initially uh <laughs> what is it uh oh, i can't think of what they call them in uh, baby jedi's padawan there we go uh initially instead of going out and trying to diagnose the distinctions in the world instead of trying to be the master of the counterfeits become the master of of the real thing uh, learn the system that god has spoken into being and what do i mean by that i mean until you know the lore of the kings israel and judah as well as you know the lore of your favorite baseball team or movie, until you know that, you have no business trying to dis- to tell where the good and the evil is out there. Because you haven't looked at the law of liberty carefully enough yet, right? You don't believe you're really here. You think you're in some other world the TV told you about. And until you live on the same planet as Omri, uh, and you know who he is and why, and Asa, Asa, uh, until you know, well, what should we learn from him? Until that's your identity, I'm going to suggest you cannot rightly even begin to discern the times. Can't even become close, right? And I'll say in that regard, I'm still a neophyte here, just trying to make my way, my way. Did that help? I hope it did. Heather says this. Hi, Pastor. What's your take on the use of hypnosis? What a catch of questions we have today. Um, I'm going to take a one minute break because this is just too much fun and I need some good water. And someday, someday I will stop moving things and remember where the buttons are.
Alrighty, alrighty. So what's my take on hypnosis for treatment of mental health conditions, addictions, and trauma? This is not completely far away from uh, the question about uh, was it psilocybin and other forms of medication for dealing with uh, trauma based upon fungal developments, uh, mushrooms, uh, in microdosing or in uh, caretaker-provided scenarios. Now, here's, here's the problem. Uh, what's the line between this and sorcery? What's the line between a physician and a sorcerer. And I know you've been led to believe that all physicians are just scientists and they only do what the empirical evidence says, but that's just not true. It'd be nice if it were, and maybe there was a time when it was, but it's going on like a hundred years ago now. I know it's kind of like, well, wait, that's not what I, yeah, I know. I know I'm with you. Like I'd only realized this too recently. And it's like, I mean, try reading again, that William James book, it'll, it'll show you where they were. And you can then you can kind of figure out where we are, and it's it's not good. It's not good. Uh, we are a long way down the rabbit hole of having professional sorcerers and priests running all over, all over treating so-called medical conditions uh, with uh, voodoo of of their own right. And this isn't just in like the actual medical establishment, although I think it does happen there by ignorance, um, and also because people are complex and every doctor is different and they're all doing stuff on their own. And so whatever they bring is what they bring. And there is no universal control fact. I mean, not, not for humans, not really. So, so you have that whole thing, but then you got like Reiki, right? You got like, um, every level of, uh, supplemental spiritual nutritional everything is a form of worship that's trying to help you as a consumer find your best life now right so all of these things fall into the same category as this question which is uh how much can a christian practice idolatry and sorcery and it all be kosher and yeah first corinthians 14 actually comes into play here a little bit where yeah you can go buy the thing the food from the idol market it's it's actually okay um just as long as you aren't worshiping the idol while you're there and that's where you know wearing the mask might, might eventually show you that this is bigger than just just science so hypnosis okay back to hypnosis specifically i don't think it sounds like a good idea uh, I don't know much about it. I know that hypnos is like the scarier twin brother of death. That's, that's kind of a thing. Um, I once thought about making twin twin bad guy characters in a story, and, and I think hypnos was one of them. Uh, but you know, forgetting the the fairy tales, the scientific theory of hypnosis is that you're just going to be put close to sleep into a place where the person's convinced you to trust them enough that anything they tell you, you will believe. And then in theory, in that place of complete vulnerable openness, they will only deposit positive, happy things. Unless of course you're on stage and they tell you to bark like a dog. And then you do that and everyone laughs. Um, now, <laughs> most people who who are like looking for health and trauma condition stuff, right? It's not going to have anything to do with barking like a dog. Um, although again, that's like the trick that you, you can see that this works. You can see that this happens unless the guy's a plant or whatever. Um, but forgetting the barking like a dog, the point is you're so vulnerable that you will be open to any suggestion. And my question is why would you ever put yourself in that situation? 
But of course, I have this hypervigilance reality, right? And and I know from uh, my attempt as a young man to get better sleep by uh, practicing hypnosis through a series of tapes I bought from some guy who sold them at a, at a, at a carnival, where some guy barked like a dog, but it wasn't me. Um, I know from my attempts, I can't be hypnotized. And it probably has a lot to do with CPTSD and the fact that I'm so afraid that I would never trust you. <laughs> and so, well, you know, there it is. But uh, can I recommend this? Like, so let's, let's put the best construction on this possible. You have a Christian medical trained doctor who focuses in psychology and spiritual care. Uh, and this person is able to, with you, with your eyes closed, taking deep breaths, talk you into states of resilience regeneration and hope founded on your faith and it helps you indeed overcome and deal with some of your past traumas that are what lead to your need to bury it with various addictions and habits is that possible i don't know why that as i just said it wouldn't be possible but that's not what most people mean by hypnosis right so like in the radical chaos world that we're in right now where anything is medical as long as it makes money right I would personally stay away from anybody saying I can hypnotize you and make your problems go away. I would, I would, that, that is charlatanry, charlatan, charlatanry. That is sorcery. Um, do I think that mindfulness practice and breathing can have hypnotic effects that are beneficial? I mean, if you're just going to get real empirical about it. Yeah. Uh, and why not? Uh, but that's, that's a little different, you know, than opening your subconscious, your, your psyche to a manipulator, a witch doctor, a voodooist, a spiritist, a person who is there to practice sorcery on you. Um, that seems like a bad idea. Even if the guy says, I don't believe in anything except myself. Like that seems like a worse idea. That means you have demons around and you don't know it. Yeah. Bad. Right. So, so there's kind of where I'm at on that is hypnosis witchcraft. Yeah. Sometimes that's, we don't know. Don't consult the mediums is the general rule though, right? Um, and so uh, what is the hypnotist again? At best, they're a magician. Or if I can absolutely change the dynamic though, and I wouldn't call it hypnosis, it's just counseling, it's just breathing, right? Someone who walks you through relaxing by a, as coaching, but that's not really what most people mean by hypnosis. And so for that reason, I'm going to go broad again. Whenever you go anywhere outside of the church for anything to fix your life in this world, Realize that everybody who's not a Christian is worshiping whatever they're selling. <laughs> ah, and then, you know, act accordingly and listen at carefully. They don't really give you what they promise. And they even write songs about it that they sell to you to make you feel sad about how they write songs about it that they sell to you, that you play again. So you can feel sad about how they, they promise this and they give you that. Yeah. Uh, what a What a wicked group they are. Yes. Does it depend on your practitioner? Yeah, it's going to have a lot to do with that. Think about the word practitioner. Just think about that word. So things that are certain are not usually practiced so much as known. Uh, worth worth pondering. Worth pondering. Uh, Noah says this. I would stay away. That's my answer. I would stay away. Um, I was reading, Noah says, through an essay in Concordia Theological Court. Wow. Good for you. Uh, that that ain't no joke, and and God bless them for still publishing it because uh, <laughs> I wasn't sure anyone was reading. Good for you. I was reading through an essay in Concordia Theological Quarterly on contraception. Oh, oh, interesting. Who wrote that, and did they actually rock the boat? Uh, I wanted to hear your thoughts on contraception in general within the confines of marriage. Is it something that Christians should or could use? 
Are there types of contraception that should be avoided? Can there be a good motive behind the use for contraceptives? All right. So let's start this one with saying that the word contraceptive is slightly better than the word vaccine as a category in that it at least tells you what it's supposed to mean as a category. It is supposed to prevent conception, contraception. It's a good word in that regard. Vaccine doesn't tell you that it's supposed to prevent contagion or not even that, right? Prevent viral overload leading to manifested illness. That wide category can be done by lots of different ways and and they do and they call them all vaccines. Contraception, they do the same thing only at least they're all kind of saying what they do when they say contraception. But the thing is, there's no such thing as contraception. Like it's not a thing. There are lots of different things that fall under this big category that are ways you can prevent a baby. And in that regard, abstinence is contraception. You just have to understand that from the start here. Okay. So to go straight to the question is, is there a good kind of contraception? Yes. Abstinence. And it should totally be practiced when you're not married. Like all the time. The practice of contraception by abstinence outside of marriage is like, go for it. Okay. No one likes that answer. Uh, isn't that funny? You'd think we were sinners or something. You'd think that God's word is right about our fallen condition. Anyway, so um, kind of laying the groundwork there so we don't fall off the edge on the other side. And then recognizing that now we want to talk about what you mean here really is not contraception. What you mean here is barren marriages. Okay. So what we're asking about is instead thoughts on intentional barrenness or intentional unfruitfulness in the marriage. Is that something Christians could or should do? Are there types of intentional barrenness that should be avoided? Can there be a good motive for intentional barrenness? All right. That's the question we should be dealing with. I think asking it that way helps, doesn't it? Can there be a good motive for intentional barrenness? Well, all right. So we're refugees. Just blew up right over there. They're coming with troops. It's me and my kids. We're going that way and we're starving. We're not sure what's going on. We don't know if we're going to be anywhere where we can find a place to live in the next two to eight months. People are starving. We're living in trees. Maybe it's time to practice abstinence just for a year, right? Hey, maybe, I mean, if you're, if you're fertile, maybe it's time, right? Can there be, I mean, if you're going to do theology by maybe, by what if, by let me find the loophole, then you're going to end up with no principles whatsoever. If you're going to do law by motive, you're going to end up with no law whatsoever. Okay. You need actual law. It doesn't matter what Harry's motive was for saving the school. He's still a little liar. That's what Harry Potter is. It's a little liar. Okay. Uh, so motive, motive does not undo evil. Motive is the argument the devil uses to try to make more evil. Mm. Now, does that mean that everyone who's ever, ever used contraceptives is going to hell? No. Like, stop with the black white again. Can, can you see that this is like pretty challenging and that even then within it, contraceptives can include abstinence. So don't, don't beat yourself up too much. Oh, but I didn't use that one. I used other ones. Okay, slow down. We'll get back to it. 
The point though is before you start asking black or white, can I, can I not? The bigger question is what are you wanting? And so should Christians want barrenness? And the answer to that question biblically is no, no, no. And a million times over, no. Is there a good motive for group barrenness by which we would deplete our population base by well over half in one generation? It's what we did. No, there's not a good motive for that. There's not a reason we should do that. And there are certainly things we should have avoided even in trying to do that, such as, now let me go hardcore here, contraceptives all prevent contraception. Not all of them do it by killing the baby. Those are called abortifacients. Not all contraceptives are abortifacients, but all abortifacients are contraceptives. That is, abortion's a contraceptive. At least, that's how it gets used. Uh, so, I mean, he's already conceived, she, he, but then again, that's what happens with the pill as well. The pill has three ways in which it works. None of these ways are particularly good for your feminine body over the long haul, just so you know. I mean, read the fine print and the long-term studies on this stuff. It's not really a healthy way to exist. But that aside, it prevents conception in two ways and prevents pregnancy in three ways. Uh, it prevents conception by uh, decreasing the, uh, the chances of an egg actually being released. It increases uh, contraception, prevention of, uh, of conceiving. Uh, it decreases conception by um, less eggs, more hostile environment to the sperm. So the less sperm get through. So they're not there. It's kind of like a stopping everything from getting there. Those are the two ways that it is, in fact, a contraception. But uh, it also works a third way, which is an abortifacient. And that is that if, in fact, an egg gets out, and if, in fact, a sperm gets to the egg, and conception does take place, then the birth control pill works by abortion, by shrinking the lining of the uterine inner wall to like an infinitesimal number, by the way. Uh, it's like one-tenth of its original size. Very, very small. Skyscraper, one story, right? Uh, and it's, it, that is the fertile soil wherein this fertilized, conceived, actual baby, newborn, uh, new, not newborn, new-conceived, days old, will move over and implant and eventually form the, the placenta, but the baby's already part of this thing, too, on the edge of it, coming off the wall the whole time, right? So that wall that's fertile soil, uh, the heightened uh, estrogen in the system, is it progesterone? I forget. Uh, the hormones, the pill is in your system, is shrinking that wall so that even a conceived egg, uh, a baby, will pass through, be unable to plant, and will end up dying in the toilet, actually. Uh, so uh, you won't know this because this all happened just as part of your monthly cycle, and uh, you, you, in theory, would not be bothered by it until you learned about it later when someone like me did the awful thing of telling you the truth. Um, that happened to me too, and I, I get how painful that is. I'm also very grateful that the person told me. So uh, as a result, I was able to stop the practice and cease potentially aborting my children uh, and instead have a couple, which was great. <laughs> so um, in this regard then, right? So uh, contraceptives which abort in which you ought to include the pill as a potential. It does not only work by abortion, and they don't ever tell you that that's part of it, but it's there. It's in the literature of old, and there's scrub it from fine print these days, even I've heard. Um, so they don't want you to know. Uh, but the preventing of it by abortifacient uh, always must be something that is rejected. So the IUD would be another way uh, that, that works this way. 
I believe the ones that inject in the arm as well. Um, and then you have this other thing that's in between abstinence and all the chemicals that kill the babies. Okay. And that's what you maybe would also think of as contraception. And what I can tell you is that that stuff is there. And if you're using it, it's just sort of one of those things where like, it's, it's not a sin in the same way that abortifacients are a sin. Like we can by no means call this the same level of evil. Uh, and yet it's, it's really a strange thing. I mean, imagine monkeys doing this. Just, just be the aliens who come down and you look at the monkeys that are like, they, they like want to touch, but they won't. Like, what are they afraid of? Oh, themselves. Weird, right? Like, like there's something going on there that's not a healthy cultural dynamic wherein we believe that not, that we believe it's bad to have more of us. That shows you how sinful we realize we are as a culture. We actually think the culture is one of despair and that it should not continue. However, Christians should have no part of that. And it shows you then the more we do this, who we're really listening to, right? So, so it's not about like, you bad people who don't want to have kids. It's more like, look who you're listening to. Look who's formed your view of what a child is. Look what you think a valuable life is about and how much it's been taken from you. That you would even conceive baroning your wife as an option, like the old ancient world, like you could walk out, I'm, I'm exacerbating a little bit, but you know, you walk up to someone and suggest this idea. He's going to be insulted. You want me not to have kids? What should I kill you? Right. I mean, like that's like the level of insult, right. That, that goes on in this and we've adopted it. We're just slave people. We're throwing our own babies in the river. Um, and sometimes actually, sometimes actually. So I don't know what you read. I know this debate's one we're not allowed to have in the LCMS. It was settled long ago when we changed our mind and decided that birth control was okay after for many, many decades, even century, um, said it was not. Uh, along with the great history of the Christian church that generally believes let God be the author of life on this one, just as we let him be the author of death. Uh, but we've kind of swept it under the rug for the sake of, I don't know, 1970s probably, <laughs> uh, and, and retaining our, our growth status as a mainline body because we'd probably lose a lot of lawyers and, and things like that. If we were really open about this. Um, so I don't know, you know, what do you do with a church body that can't stand on its own legs anymore as it fights over what it is? You preach to the crowd. That's what you do. So, uh, and I think then, you know, recovering a desire to not be barren as a group is important to our future. I'm going to repeat that as the best thing I said in the last 10 minutes. I'm going to suggest that recovering our desire to propagate ourselves, to have more of ourselves as a group, whatever group you're a part of is an important part of that group's future. <laughs> yeah. Procreation, fruitfulness. And this doesn't just mean conversion. I hate it. I hate it when the, 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 the self-justifying charismatics will come back at the idea that, that having kids is good with the idea that somehow I'm saying we shouldn't convert people to Christianity. Oh, but then you won't have mission. Oh, you just go home. Will you golly go hide in your corner. Man, like, sorry, I've had these conversations again. And it's just like, there's more than one truth at work in the world. And when we stopped propagating ourselves, we stopped existing. And LCMS, we're still feeling the the hemorrhage of this. Our buildings, our our institutions, they're shaking at the roots. And our our president even said, was it six years ago, nine years ago, he just studied it and he showed how the entire collapse of our system is really at the foot of the birth control pill. It's really at the foot of procreation. And anybody who had three or four kids per family, like South Dakota district, <laughs> they're doing fine. But everywhere else where we had less than two kids, well, look what's happening. It's collapsing. So it's not just a matter of what the theology says. There's a pragmatic level of this. If you don't believe you should continue, then you won't. And why would you let anyone convince you that you shouldn't? And why would a whole church body who thinks it's the soul-saving orthodox factor of God on earth not want to have kids? 
just nuts. Oh, goodness. Oh, and that was just the back end of the question. So here's some more of the question from the front end. Thank you, Pastor Fisk. Maybe this is the next one. F continued. We'll see here. Oh, no, here it is. Here's, here we go. Moving on. Moving on. Hillary says this. Hillary says this. I need a sip of water in my five seconds. Hillary says, if we don't put to death the rapist, the pimp, the incestuous adult, when, then why do we put to death the baby? Well, this is a very, a very logical argument against abortion. Unfortunately, it will never work against someone who's arguing for abortion because what they're doing is worshiping their God and zealously defending their God at all costs, reason aside. So, you're right, though. We are an unjust society. I can't disagree with you at, at all on this. It's maddening. Yes, it is. Disgusting. Yes, heartbreaking. Yes, it is all of these things and par for the course, normal not only for us, but for human history. Please see this. The murder of babies is a consistent string throughout the history of humanity as part of the worship of the demons. It's been there all along. It's always in corners here and there, and God goes every so often to it. Christians, we kind of want to get away. We want to get away. If you can close that abortion mill, you do it, but you don't build a house right next door. Mm, no, you don't. No, you don't. You go down and you do war there, right? You, do, you go down and you pray. Uh, so, uh, maddening, disgusting, heartbreaking. All reasons to open your psalter and say a psalm. I will not use any product that sacrifices little babies so that I might try to live longer on earth. Amen, Hillary. Good for you. Take that stand. I agree. In fact, I even told my wife yesterday she has to pick up a little bit of cortisone cream. And I, she said, do you want the one that you that you have? And I flipped it over. It said, Johnson, Johnson. I said, no, I do not. If you can find me one that's not Johnson, Johnson, do it. At the same time, you cannot possibly avoid living on this fallen planet wherein your food is coming to you by the blood of somebody somewhere. So just... Own that, but at the same time, yeah, make a symbolic stand. Absolutely. It's exactly what I just did. So um, one man, you don't want to live longer because one man, little preaching to Christ, this is great. One man gave up his life so that I may have eternal life and he knows when he's taking me home. Amen to that. That is where COVID has given you the opportunity to be freer than anybody was for a good long while in civilization because Everyone has labored under this belief that what we do or do not do leads to our death. And there's some like good hypothesizing that shows, in fact, if you step in front of a bus, you're likely to die. So like there is a, a cause and effect that happens that at a certain level we can observe. But what we've forgotten is that way beyond that, way above my little will being like willful down here in its corners and making its decisions is the cosmic plan and predestination of almighty God and the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And that he is the one who kills everybody. Get it, write it down, put it in your heart. You know who kills people? Jesus does. Nobody dies unless Jesus kills him. I mean it. He's the author. He's sitting up there right now. The Greeks talk about the three fates with the string and they snap the cord. That's not them. It's Jesus. <laughs> and that means since he's your king, your Lord, your friend, your brother, that means that your death is going to be a particular gift to you because he knows how good it will be for you to remember the resurrection in the face of death. He knows how powerful it will be for you to live a life now unafraid of it insofar as you can know that. Yeah, he'll do that. Oh man, Stonewall Jackson. So I think of Stonewall Jackson. If you don't know his story, you should check it out. Uh, he's a general in the South. Ooh, it's so bad, isn't it? Yeah, whatever. Um, he's a general in the South. Uh, what was cool about Stonewall 
is he just believed what you said. And he was called Stonewall because during the, uh, the campaigns, he'd be on his horse just standing there and there'd be cannon fodder exploding and bullets everywhere. And, you know, the, the battle's down away from the generals a bit, and, and, but they're still lining up and shooting at, at each other a whole lot. And like, and he just doesn't care. And when asked about it, he's just like, well, when God wants me dead, he's going to have a bullet hit me or whatever. He's like, I'm going to go. You know, God will do it. And it's amazing. He, he, he is an inspiration to his people. They follow him, they follow him, they follow him. And then it's, it's so sad. He dies in, in the moment of victory. Like the South's going to win the war. And he accidentally gets killed by his own people in friendly fire in a foggy, dense cloud. Not that I necessarily think, I mean, you know, South winning the war. This was a war about a whole bunch of stuff that has very little to do with me, actually. Um, so I'm not going to take sides in that war. What I am going to say is that the loss of republicanism happened then <laughs> and that the rise of democratic tyranny occurred, occurred then a brief history of power Two white guys, a show with me and Dr. Adam Coons, where we talk about such things. You can find us on iTunes uh, and whatnot. And while I'm selling you stuff, you might as well sign up for the mad Christian Mondays newsletter. It is the news. You didn't know that you didn't want to know, but now you know, and it's good to let it all go. That's right. If you got to have one thing that tells you what happened last week, so you know whether or not your stockpiling of foodstuffs has been of value. Mad Christian Mondays, that's the way. We'll keep you in, term, in tune with everything that's going on, including like, you know, what, what the robot dogs are doing and, and blah, blah, blah. But focusing in on those real mind attacks, those real heart wars of our society, uh, the, the news that matters to Christian Mad Christian Mondays, sign up at uh, refist.com slash newsletter um, and pray for the website launch on that one we're talking about getting mad christian mondays a website of its own um all right what else should i sell before i move back to the question discord have you found us on discord you know what discord is discord is a network like well facebook like twitter social network but not like those in those two networks the network is run by them in order to sell you stuff in discord the network is run by me in order to encourage you to network with other like-minded christians we're a little crazy uh, who are willing to take a stand in this present age and there's all sorts of stuff you can find there um it is it is its own thing like facebook is so coming there is a little bit of crazy it's a little bit overwhelming um but we got a whole group of people ready to help you kind of become part of it find your niche and get encouraged week by week uh, and so forth. In fact, I even told uh, Rebecca, who was just on uh, for the interview, uh, that we want to try to get a, a, a channel set up for her podcast. The Mad Dibber podcast has a group that meets there. The Brief History Power podcast has a, a channel that goes on there. Lots of conversation going on in there all the time. You got my personal station of the dystopic cosmic horror, wherein a bunch of people track crazy news with me. You got Citadelia, the streets where you can talk about anything from Hebrew <laughs> uh, to psychology to, uh, you know, kittens. Why not? Um, Mad Christian Discord. I really recommend it. Get the Discord app and then search for Us the Chill. Us the Chill in the Discord app. Now, the exception to this would be if you already don't spend time online, don't do this. Don't do this to spend time online unless you want the power of network, which is actually pretty powerful. But but um, if this is more of like you spend too much time online, you know that that's wrong. You would like to go somewhere where you know what you're going to get is going to be better than what you're getting now. And we're also going to be encouraged by people to go home. Get off, turn off. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's just here. It'll be here later, right? Uh, that's the Mad Christian Discord. Okay, so it's maddening. Yes, it is. Um, may God keep you and your family uh, in his hands. Hillary says, yeah, the knowledge that the virus can't kill you and only God kill can is pretty key. Um, oh, that was the end of that one. Oh, I did it again, Frisbee. I'm so bad at this. See how I do this every time? Okay, this is the front of that letter that I just threw away where she says, uh, thank you, Pastor Fizz. Thank you for being a Lutheran investigating the use of often live aborted babies for research and medical projects. 
trying to, again, with Mad Christian Mondays and, and trying to make the best use of other people's information, right? Life site and them being taken down by YouTube is a big, big hit in this regard. Um, so going on, I feel like I'm the only non-Catholic, I'm LCC, born and raised of LCMS lineage, who knows anything about the use of aborted babies, but I didn't even know the full history until I came across this website, The Children of God for Life. So we'll, we'll take that as a wreck. I don't know much about The Children of God for Life. I don't know how reputable they are. Um, but hopefully, uh, Mad Christian Mondays will dig into that a little bit. Frisbee, how are you, how are you doing? Uh, and uh, uh, for those of you who are watching, though, I mean, yeah, finding real information on the vaccine trail of aborted babies is hard, but it goes back through that Bush era where it all went underground, right? Bush Bush 2 made it illegal to use the parts, and then the black market springs up, and life sites doing the digging, and again, God bless the Roman Catholics for this one, because they're the ones doing the praying and the working on it, we just sit and watch and twiddle our thumbs. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So children of God for life. Um, seems like an interesting thing to check out. She goes on. I watched an interview on BitChute and looked under Vax TV describing how abortions of the twenties and thirties were done, cutting the woman open. Oh golly. Uh, Dr. Susan Humphrey's book, dissolving illusions for the history of vaccines and how most illnesses were on the decline because of sanitation and refrigeration long before vaccines. That makes a lot of sense. Um, oh, watch on YouTube. Stanley Plotkins, the godfather of modern vaccines and happily about atheists under oath, testified how many aborted babies are used for vaccine research. So many he doesn't remember or seem to care. That all connects to the, the statement that you're going to take your stand against corporations that profiteer on the death of humans, right? Uh, slavery of the worst kind. You want to talk about abolition. You want to talk about what the Civil War was for. What the Civil War was for, if you believe it was to end slavery, didn't do it. If you are a ward of the state, as most people living in African-American impoverished, impoverished inner-city communities end up being by virtue of needing the nanny state to take care of them, you are still a slave. You are still a slave when the state hands you a check. Um, they own that. If you are still going to work to pay off a debt you cannot escape from, you're a slave. You're an indentured servant. Own that. Why do you think it all went away because of the Civil War? It's just this nonsense. It's nonsense. That's why also they're making such a big deal about how great we are and how we don't have any, you know, we've gotten rid of all these bad things. That's the lie. That's the lie. Um, these things are still here and the slavery is, is very real. Um, but the history of humanity is one of humans enslaving others. So don't be surprised that you're in a slave caste. I mean, it's just, or, you know, a servit a servitude caste and you don't get to just live and be born with a golden spoon in your mouth. I mean, very few get to be that kind of elite. And thanks be to God, because frankly, Christianity spends a lot more time down here with us in the muck, doesn't it? I believe, I believe Paul says that pretty clearly. So, all right. I wandered a bit there. It's, 11, 11 a.m. on the 15th of May, and we're almost done. Judith uh, has this to say. Dear Pastor Fisk, your ministry on all platforms continues to instruct and bless. Judith, thank you. Do continue to watch my YouTube videos all over the place and comment on them, and that's 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 just profound, I think. <laughs> so thank you for uh, continuing to be benefited by it. I say this stuff into this camera, standing alone in a room. I'm the only person here except for your chatter over here, and then I walk away and it vanishes. And the, you know, the more that people find it later, if anybody stumbles across it and it gives them he has risen <laughs> my job is is joyful at that point my job is joyful you will probably roll your eyes at this she says uh but could you please clarify what being a confessing lutheran means i've heard this term used here and there <sighs> ah that's a good question i'm confused about i just sound like jar jar i'm confused about whether being sacramental is good or bad i'm sorry for these elementary questions but you've got to start somewhere well sacramental is a word that means I have no coffee. No, it doesn't mean that, but I, I do. Sacramental is a word that has lost some of its usefulness by being watered down and being used to mean a lot of other things. At one point, or in some contexts, like Lutheran dogmatics, 
it means baptism or the Lord's Supper, right? And so you can't be a Christian and not be sacramental in that regard. And that if you don't have baptism in the Lord's Supper, then you're not a Christian. Like you're, just, you're not the church, right? You're some other thing. And um, so that's sort of the where we come from when we use that word. However, again, like I said, it's been it's been very, very watered down. It does just mean mystery. And so it's it's not like it's a biblical word in a sense, it's an Augustinian, excuse me, an Augustinian word. It's from St. Augustine. Um, it's a good confession. And so this gets us maybe to this idea of confessing. Okay. So who's, who's Augustine, right? Why would we have this guy, Augustine, and this word sacrament that he said, that's not in the Bible, be something that has become so essential to the way Lutherans uh, talk about their Christianity? Well, it's because we believe in confession. We believe not just that you go and tell your sins to a pastor. I mean, we believe in that too. But by confession, we first mean that um, you believe with the heart and then you confess with the mouth what you believe. And this isn't just a one time I acknowledge Jesus as Lord, although it's not, it's not bad to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and to convict yourself with that thought. But um, it's not a one time thing. Uh, it is an ongoing life of speaking out loud what you have received from God, right? So to hear and receive. So when Jesus says, um, who do people say that I am? And they, the disciples, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, all these things. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, right? Um, Jesus was eliciting a confession. He was asking for a confession. He was saying, I am here for you to say, Amen, right? To, to, to amen back to me. And then the history of Christianity has been tied to, tied to scripture first, and then people's confessions, which eventually become tradition. Because when a confession becomes strong enough that many people say, that's also my confession. He wrote it, but I believe it, right? And I believe it's what the scripture says. Then it becomes more, it becomes a symbol even, right? More than just, say, someone saying something by themselves. It is a symbol for a much larger group. So St. Augustine's Confessions, which is a book he wrote uh, to confess his sins, his life, his witness, why he's a Christian, uh, to leave behind his own sort of just autobiography. Um, but at the time, as him saying who he believed Jesus is, that was a major, major unifying symbol in the ancient church. Now, there were larger ones like the councils, um, but there were lots of these kinds of symbols and gatherings and the various orders of monasticism do spring up sometimes around such leadership or such confessors. All right. So recognizing that the church always uh, in the ship upon the, the sea of chaotic time is confessing what the scriptures say. So you think of the, the planks on the ground as being the scriptures that you're standing on, but then the wind of the sails is the confession. It's you're saying what the scriptures say. Um, Lutheran, seeing that that's always been the case, recognized as it was happening to them in the 1500s that they were making symbolic statements that were bigger than themselves. The chief of this being the Augsburg Confession, uh, a document that was presented to the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire on behalf of him representing the Rome and the papal estates for the sake of marshalling the armies against the invading Turk, which was a very real threat at the time as the Ottoman Empire had already destroyed Constantinople uh, many, many years before, right, and was, was continuing to spread its reach. And they, the Saracen was indeed a, a barbaric, if enlightened at the same time, uh, sorceress. A type of religious guy, right? So, um, you know, Vlad the Impaler has some fun with that. If you want to look up that history, 
But while that's all going on, you know, these Lutherans are causing trouble and we can't unite, unite the armies just right. So they get brought down and they're, they, they give their defense. They, they state that what we believe, teach and confess that has been called excommunicatable, that's been called from the devil, that's been called the heresy that destroys the church. Well, here's what it is. Augsburg Confession, 28 points, 28, something like that. Um, I should memorize that number. Um, and uh, to be a confessing Lutheran then means to know that document existed and really to say, oh, yeah, that one's me too. <laughs> I'm On Judgment Day, I'm on that one. That one's what the Bible says. It's not very long. It's pretty useful, this Augsburg Confession. The small catechism would be the second document that goes with it. And then there are about five others, four others. They're all kind of interlaced with each other from the same time period that hang together as a core called the Book of Concord. So whereas the Augsburg Confession and the small catechism are uh, the symbols of a generation that was involved in the Reformation around Dr. Luther particularly, like in his lifetime, then uh, the remaining of the book is like the the encapsulating of it, the Book of Concord, all the confessions up to the the next generations like passing on like a whole generation later saying sort of the same thing and so most of those other confessional documents like the formula of concord kind of back end on to the augsburg confession and don't exist without it so as a whole they stand like augustine's confessions or like say the council of nicaea as an event in time where christians got together and said we believe this and confessing lutherans mean that they got it right like everything they talked about, like in the broad, like their main categories and what they say the Bible says about it, they got it straight up right. <laughs> right. And that's what it means to be a confessing Lutheran, that we use that as a barometer beside our Bible to ask these other Christians, okay, I'm reading the Bible and I came up with this idea. Is it true? And it's like, no. And look at all these other Bible verses and here's why. And look what it did to these people in this area because they taught this and that. Oh yeah, no, that's a bad idea. I'm not going to believe that one. <laughs> right. So it's, it's like that. Um, the, the confession of the great cloud of witnesses from behind and then recognizing that not all witnesses are equally golden. Some are straw, some are hay, some are uh, silver, some are brass. And the Lutheran confessions, I contend, are, are gold in so far as and for what they are. How to use them in the present age, that's a tough question. That's a tough question. I, I recommend you get to know that Augsburg Confession if you can. And if you get tired after, say, Article 12, that's okay. Just knowing the first 10 to 12 articles would be really, really good. And, and then the um, small catechism right there with it, you'll find that they go hand in hand. And they're, they're not even that, it's not that big. It's not that much. So you go to bookofconcord.org for a free copy or free free version of it. You can read right there. You can buy various, various publishing houses, have different levels of it. I like a paperback Augsburg Confession from Concordia Publishing House for like seven bucks, I think. And it's just the Augsburg Confession. I really recommend that. If you join my congregation, we give it to you. <laughs> uh, because in an LCMS church, this is fairly important. If you join an LCMS church, Lutheran church, uh, the constitution, which is the way we say we're going to do business with each other, one of the first things it says is everything we decide should be decided based upon the scriptures and the Augsburg Confession and the small catechism as the Book of Concord teaches it. And then people will go on to these meetings and just do whatever they want, right? And no one ever looks at those documents or even knows they exist. So so one of my real, real hopes here is that we will help understand that self-governance in a Lutheran church is about the Augsburg Confession. It's about confessing it. And if we're not here to confess it, then then we're doing something else and we've made a vow to God. He ain't gonna, he ain't gonna honor. I'll, I'll say that. Uh, so um, does that help? A confessing Lutheran is one who holds to the Book of Concord of 1580 as a proper understanding 
an interpretation, a proper understanding of the Christian faith and scriptures. That is, people 1,500 years removed from the Bible, embroiled in a controversy in which they were being threatened with bloodshed and burning alive, right? Being burned for holding their ground on the scriptures. They said, we're going to hold our ground on scriptures. You can cut off our heads if you want. We'll actually submit to that, but you cannot take away from us the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, Those documents... And seeing those documents as the church in history doing what the church does well, um, that's what it means to be a confessing Lutheran. Now, does everyone who says I'm a confessing Lutheran actually care? <laughs> I mean, the whole LCMS officially, like on paper, is the confessional Lutheran church. So is the Wells. Uh, but like, that's officially what we are. Mm. Most of our membership in our pews don't even know that things exist, which is a fascinating thing. More important to get to sports practice. That's what we got to do. And of course, of course, got to do VBS. Jules. Last question for the morning says this, what is the difference between ruach, 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 and, and nefesh, nefesh, uh, two Hebrew words, uh, that, uh, I, I want them in Hebrew on the screen for some reason. Uh, they're cool looking words. The big difference here, I, I haven't studied this closely recently and I want to study it more because I think this is an important, uh, etymological distinction in Hebrew, but ruach meaning spirit, nefesh often translated life or soul. Um, and Ruach sometimes translated as soul, uh, both of them connecting to suke uh, in the Greek, um, but also pneuma in the Greek. So there's, you know, when you get into these biblical languages, you have two different vocabulary sets and they don't line up, right? And so the context of the verse really has a lot to do with a lot of uh, what, what it really means then. And so you can't, you can't paint too broad a brush. But I would say that the the spirit of God is ruach, okay? So the Holy Spirit is ruach, and that's the spirit that's put into man. So man has ruach in him. That is the spirit of God is put ruach in him, both creative and then regenerative uh, in the Holy Spirit's work. Um, and that nefesh is more like the result of being a being made with ruach and flesh, okay? So like the nefesh is that I am a Ruach and a body. Now this gets translated as life or soul, but see, soul can kind of mean that too. And this is where our, the Gnosticism of the present, that we think that soul doesn't mean and your body, um, or at least as connected to or extended to your body, this has a lot more to do with probably Platonism uh, than, than to do with, say, the Bible. Uh, and so um, to think of your nefesh uh, as you, the full person, and then your ruach is more like your your breath, your wind, and and in that part, it, your spirit. You know, do you have any spirit? Will right, or is your spirit weak? Your will is weak, and that's connected to your heart, which your breath is also connected to your heart. You notice that? Um, so it's it's a different kind of thing in that regard, right? The nefesh is the bigger deal then for us as humans. Um, the group nefesh that we have uh, is a really big deal, whereas the ruach is more like who God the Holy Ruach is. Right? He's not the Holy Nefesh. He's the Holy Ruach. Right, um, and yet Jesus, Jesus, by being human, must indeed um, uh, be a nephish. Yeah, um, so there, that's a start on that for you. Uh, in the Mad Christian Discord, we have a Hebrew channel, we have a Greek channel. They are both increasingly dedicated to group and self learning for those laity who would like to read the scriptures in their original languages. I don't teach the languages except privately, 7 p.m. Wednesday nights at my congregation. Feel free to move to Rockford and join the class, but. In that group, definitely there are other pastors, there are other people who are excellent at these languages there to answer your questions. So if you would like to read the Bible 
in your own language, by all means, join us to chill the mad Christian discord, get the discord app and then ask around. Someone will help point you there. Um, we got great teachers. Uh, that is just people who are in the text themselves and can answer your questions uh, about these kinds of things, precisely these kinds of things. I think, I think, I think that brings us to an end. It's only 1124. What a good morning. I think it has been for my end. How about yourselves? Um, you got to see a vulnerable side of me there with that interview with, with Rebecca. So I hope that that was, um, enlightening. Oh, I don't know why the problem with the CPTSD condition, you really do hate yourself on a certain level. People can't fathom. It's, it's pretty intense. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, what I said about when I get done with the show, I, I don't collapse, but I internally do. I buckle and collapse in complete, like, Oh, I blew it this time. It's all over. It's all going to fall apart now. So that's where I am right now inside. I'm going to let that out again. Cause I think, I think the more that you are simply honest about what your body's telling you, the more you can then compare it to what the scripture says. <laughs> it doesn't mean what your body's telling you is true, but it's what's real. It's what's present. And then what you want is to take what's real and present and then give it some scripture. Oh, yeah. oh. And that'll help a little bit. So I think, I think what I should do is pray these sons. Oh, I said should though. It's such a terrible word. I think what I want to do is pray these sons of Solomon, sons of Solomon Psalms, 124, 129 and 149. Those are the midday, mid-morning Psalms. They're for when you're feeling weak. They're when you're feeling like your your workload has gotten the better of you and you need to remember that your God is on your side. 124, 129, and 149. I'll be praying those in just a moment because, because to be a mad Christian is to not wallow in the muck with those who have no hope, but to lift up your head all the more as you see the day approaching. I didn't mention Patreon. You can find me there on Patreon and that would be awesome. But even if you don't, Pray for me, would you? And we'll catch y'all next week. Rock on. Was that worth a dollar? Click the Patreon link in the show notes to sign up. Pretty please? 